we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, 
southern-sense.com and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right. Good afternoon and welcome back to another adventure here on Blog Talk Radio. On Oh, you're listening to... I have no idea what I'm doing here, Curtis. I've only been doing this for <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> if you're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, up on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Facebook, iHeart, half a dozen other different places. I have no idea. Oh, good Lord. I'm your hostess with the wackiest hostess at the moment, <laughs> Annie, the radio chickadee, along with Curtis, my comedic CS Bennett. <laughs> you got a new title today, All right. <laughs> I hear. Oh, man. Oh, jeez. We got ourselves a jam-up show as usual. Uh, We've got my friend Colin Heaton coming back. He's got a new book book out that's fascinating. It's called Above the Reich, Deadly Dogfights, Blistering Bombing Raids, and Other War Stories from the Greatest American Air Heroes of World War II, in their own words. And, oh, my goodness, I read this book in, in a day and a half. That is how good the book is. Um, that's going to be followed by Andy uh, Bigelow. Uh, I'm sorry, not Bigelow, Biggio. Um, he wrote a book called The Rifle, Combat Stories from America's Last World War II Veterans Told Through an M1 Garand. And that is another book I read in one sitting. I read the whole wow. thing, speed read through that whole thing. It is so, so great and so fascinating. Then we have your friend, Beth Heath. She's the founder of We Can Be Heroes Foundation. And then you see up on Fox News, CNN, Newsmax, all the time, Ari Hoffman. He's been on the show before, and he's coming back again. He's the associate editor and correspondent for the post-millennial. Uh, he's the one that started breaking out the stories about what was going on with Antifa and the anti-Semitic attacks in Seattle area. Um, and then we're going to close off with, as usual, someone from the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Joe Lacanti is coming back. Uh, he also has a book out that he wrote a couple of years ago that I really do want to talk to him about. It's called A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. I'm a great, great fan of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. And uh, we've got other issues to talk with, but I do want to bring that up with him. So like I said, we got a lot going on here today. And folks, you heard me talking about taking the show up to the next notch. That's going to happen very soon. I would say within the next month. Um, We fell into something uh, through uh, a friend of the show. I want to give a shout out to Dan Perkins. Uh, He put me together uh, with the gentleman last night. And he's got everything I want. And as we're talking, it turns out we knew each other. Uh, from broadcasting in the past, and he's been dying to get our show over to his network, which means it's going to be a a video podcast. Uh, We will still broadcast over to Blog Talk Radio, but I won't be actively on it. We'll have chat rooms on all the other mediums that will be out there, uh, which he will monitor and make sure that, you know, no trolls. (laughs) But it's going to look sharp. It's going to look really, really nice. It's something that I've got to... Do get all the kinks out and fine-tune it, but it's going to happen and happen really, really soon. And from what my friend Dan said, within three shows, he's gone up to somewhere around one million unique listeners. 
Whoa. We're on our way, folks. We're on our way. We've been getting the big names to come on on our podcast. Imagine what we can then do with a video cast. Oh, we're going to blow the doors off the competition. <laughs> Knock the socks off of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> want to welcome everyone that is in the chat room here on Blog Talk Radio, uh, also over on uh, Facebook and YouTube. We are now really very successful in getting all that broadcasting over there. So uh, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen in the future. Uh, I'm ready. So uh, we are ready. We are ready. Amen. Oh, Anyone that listens to our show knows that we start each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to uh, Reserve Deputy Constable Martinez Mitchum of the New York's second, I'm sorry, not New York, New Orleans Second City Court out of Louisiana. His end of watch was Friday, February 26th of this year. And this is from WWLTV. By Than Throng, Eyewitness News. The loss of one law enforcement here in New Orleans could be felt as far away as California, for all I know, said Donovan Leva Carey. A Tulane University police officer killed while working security at a high school basketball game is being remembered by the police community. Investigators said Corporal Martinez Mitchum died that Friday night, February 26th, after a suspect shot him outside a George Carver High School. Word of the killing spread quickly. One woman on Facebook said she was devastated about the killing of her friend. She wrote, He was such an advocate for young people and such a good man. My heart is broken. Slidell police sent prayers out to Mitchum. The police department said he was a graduate of their basic reserve academy class number 20. The loss of one law enforcement here in New Orleans could be felt as far away as California. Leva Carey represents the Fraternal Order of Police here in New Orleans. He said the murder of Corporal Mitchum is a reminder of how the dangers in policing can be found in the most mundane settings. That danger is present when the officer stops at the grocery store on his way home from work. You just never know. What is going to be waiting for you around the corner, Leva Carey said. On that Friday night, as a basketball game was taking place at Carver High School, Corporal Mitchell, Mitchum was working a security detail. According to New Orleans police, the suspect tried to get into the building but got into an argument with the school worker. That's when investigators said Mitchum got involved, trying to remove the suspect from campus and got shot. In the process, the individual fired a shot that struck the officer in his chest. The officer was relocated to UMC, where he later expired, said New Orleans Police Superintendent Sean Ferguson. Tulane University issued a statement on Corporal Mitchum's death, saying in part, We are deeply saddened by the senseless and tragic death of TUPD Corporal Martinez Mitchum. Corporal Mitchum was a dedicated police professional who had a heart of service for the Tulane community. The suspect, John Shallowhorn, is in the New Orleans Parish Jail, booked with first-degree murder of a police officer. 
In addition to working at Tulane, Mitchum also was the reserve officer for the Second City Constable's Office. He previously worked for the Loyola Police Department. His growing police career cut short basketball game. And this is from Rod Walker from NOLA.com. Martinez Mitchum loved three things. He loved church, where you can find him every Sunday and Thursday. He loved children, though he didn't have any of his own. And he loved law enforcement, the career path he was so ambitious about and the one that eventually led to his tragic death. Mitchum, a Tulane University police officer and reserve Second City Court constable, was working as security detail at a basketball game at George Washington Carver High School when he was shot and killed. He died after intervening in an altercation between John Shellahorn and a school administrator. It hurts because he was one of the best, said Lynn Clark, a former football player at O. Perry Walker High School, where Mitchum worked from 2006 to 2016. They killed somebody that helped so many African-American students come out of there and become something. He always supported everything. How do you take the life of someone who loves, who helps the lives of so many people who they said weren't going to be anything? Clark, now 26, was one of those people Mitchum's always checked up on. But Mitchum, or Mitch, as everyone called him, checked up on everyone. Everyone was my son or my daughter to him. We would always tease him and say, Mitch, you have more children than anybody to be so young, said Cheryl Eaglin, Mitchum's former co-worker. Mitchum and Eaglin both started working at O. Perry Walker in 2006. He eventually became like family to her. He would irk me like a little brother at times, but he was so genuine, and there was nothing he wouldn't do for those kids, Eaglin said. Mitchum, a Detroit native, was working security at the school when he first started, but that didn't last long. We transitioned him to some of the other positions because of how well he dealt with the children and his other skill sets, said Terrence Davis, the school's former athletic director. Mitchum was put in charge of student data and enrollment and also became the director of basketball and football operations. In the 2013-14 to 14 school year, O'Perry Walker merged with Landry High School to form the Landry Walker, and the school won the state basketball championship the first season. It was the first of three state titles in four years for the school. We probably wouldn't have had those championships that we had in basketball if it wasn't for Mitch, Davis said. He just has a heart for the well-being of children. He played a vital role with the organization administrative parts of putting that program to what it became. Brian Gibson was the coach of those teams and said they couldn't have done it without Mitchum, who handled the administrative duties. He booked hotels on the road trips, made food arrangements, and did all the other behind-the-scene duties. He was really responsible, making sure all of our businesses was in place. We were very successful, and a lot of that was because I didn't have to worry about that stuff. You think about how many kids we were able to send to college. He worked directly with them to make sure they had what they needed, and they respected him for that. It was nothing but love with him and the kids. He expected certain things and wanted it done a certain way, and I think the kids appreciated that about him. Because of his love for the church, 
Many family members in his hometown of Detroit thought he would grow up to become a preacher. But law enforcement was his dream, so he chased it. He graduated from Slidell Police Department's Basic Reserve Police Academy in 2014. He also spent time as an officer at Loyola University. Mitchum was a dedicated police professional who had a heart of service for the Tulane community. Tulane officials said in a statement, Mitchum, who was in uniform at the time of the shooting, was taken to the University Medical Center by paramedics and was pronounced dead soon after. The thing I was most proud of was seeing the escort he got to the hospital, Elglin said, of how the police cleared the way for the ambulance on the interstate. He deserves that. If you could pick how you could go, that would probably be what Mitch would have picked with the security. He loved protecting people, like the children who were inside that gym. We don't know what could have happened if this person had gotten inside the gym with the gun. From Katie Rickdahl, NOLA.com. The line of blue lights can be seen for black blocks as fellow law enforcement officers gathered at St. Stephen's Missionary Baptist Church in Algiers for the funeral of fallen officer Martinez Mitchum. The Tulane University police officer and reserve constable of New Orleans Second City Court Constable was killed a week earlier while working security at a boys' basketball playoff game. Mitchum was shot in the chest as he tried to escort John Schillerhorn, 35, from the building because he was arguing with the school employee who wouldn't let him enter without a medical mask or a temperature check. To mourn, Mitchum, 38, officers came in patrol cars from Dillard University and the University of New Orleans, the New Orleans Police Department, police departments and sheriff offices across the New Orleans area and Natchez, Mississippi. While many local officers knew Mitchum and mourned their good-natured colleagues, many people with no personal ties to him made their way to the visitation, funeral, and finally the last call ceremony at the Tulane Police Station at Tulane Medical Center. Natchez Police Chief Joseph Doherty Sr. didn't know Mitchum, he said he drove three hours with two of his youngest officers to the ceremony so they could understand the law enforcement family to which they now belong. On any day, it could be one of us, said Doherty, 50, a New Orleans native who grew up in Hollygrove and first worked in law enforcement under Orleans Parish Criminal Sheriff Charles Foti in 1997. A local officer gave Doherty's a black morning band personalized with Mitchin's badge number 329. After almost a quarter century in law enforcement, Doherty has attended so many funerals of fallen officers that he has a small collection of black morning bands in his dresser drawer, ready to slip over his own badge before he attends a police funeral. He doesn't feel right if he attends one without a morning band. Sometimes, if there's no time to make a band, He's run a line of black electrical tape across his badge. He also has a distinct routine at the funeral of a fellow officer. It's one he's discussed with his two Manchez officers on Saturday. When I walk into that funeral, I look into the casket and say in my mind, that could have been me. Next to the church, Reverend Cornell's sister stood in the parking lot speaking with Candy Ben. Both have come to pay their respects 
though they didn't know Mitchum. We came because he protected and served. And he was so young. He could have been my son, Ben said. We came because every day he was out there putting his life on the line for me, you, and everyone else. Today's show is dedicated to Reserve Deputy Constable Martinez Mitchum. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to the brave men and women out there that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
you're here listening to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeart. Oh, good Lord. Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I see the chat room starting to fill up as well as our switchboard. And people are listening in over on YouTube and Facebook. Yay, we got them all working, Curtis. Yay. All right. <laughs> yeah, we need hey, the more the merry, as they say. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The more the merrier. And I can't wait to get the new format up and running. And we should have that running within the next month, hopefully sooner. So the things are in the works. Good things are happening. And I'm telling you, the good Lord is leading people to us. And from out of places, I didn't even expect to see happen. Oh, man. But it's... We're not going to look a gift horse in the mouth (laughs) at all. But, you know... Oh, no. I got to just make a little side note uh, because we're waiting for our uh, Colin to call in and I spoke to him earlier. So everything's on the go. Um, we may have Kevin Sorbo coming on the show real soon too. Uh, you know, Tarzan, uh, uh, no Hercules, Hercules. Hercules. Uh, he's got a new movie coming out. Yeah. So we've had his wife, Sam on in the past. So uh, he's sent me an email that I got last night saying, Kevin goes, I'm in. So yes, just a matter of setting up the date and time that's convenient for him with his shooting schedule. Uh, but little side note, um, someone had sent me a, a tweet and I, I, I honestly, I'm not up on the social media networks that much anymore. Um, but they sent me something about uh, uh, critical race theory and I'm looking at it. I'm going, holy, you know what? Crap. Um, here at the University of South Carolina, they are holding a seminar for teachers from K through 12 to teach them how to teach critical race theory in the schools here in the state of South Carolina. A totally red state, and they're bringing this white this this indoctrination into our own schools here. So I have my school uh, uh, board representative that I helped elect. I actually knocked on doors to get his name on a petition, and he knows. <laughs> I, if, if I call him, he's answering. Uh, but I sent him a text, and I said, David, uh, are you aware uh, that this is going on at USB this very weekend, today? Started yesterday and now today? And he goes, no. And I said, is it being used and is it going to be brought into our school district? And he says, I will find out. So, folks, if you are concerned about critical race theory and what's being taught in school, get a hold of your school board representatives and, and let them know what your concern is. Because the left is contacting them. We've got to be as just as vigilant and as often as we possibly can to let them know that what our side thinks. So, you know, I started the ball rolling. I'm going to follow up with contacting the school superintendent because also he knows me. Uh, but uh, this is this is really getting out of hand. And no matter what, you, we now have uh, – Texas is trying to pass legislation. Right now the Democrats have stonewalled that one. Uh, Florida, here in South Carolina, it's up in the legislature. Uh, whether or not it gets passed, I don't know. It's a fighting battle. And it's a battle we can't let up because the left doesn't let up, nor should we. No, they don't. Nor should we. And I just just read something about um, the governor of Nevada signing into law permanent um, mail-in voting. What's that all about? (laughs) Didn't they learn anything from last year? 
But the state of Nevada, as I understand it, prior to this huge debacle, already had mail-in balloting. They already had that, and they've had it for quite a long time. Um, what method they use, I don't know. But in the past, they really didn't have a problem with it, honestly. It's now just these last two election cycles that the left has figured out how to usurp it. I would like to see safeguards in it, but they've, they've been using it for quite a long time. Uh, she's just codifying what they've been doing. Um, whether or not she's changed anything they've been doing, I don't know, because I have not read the legislation. be interesting to find out if someone knows and lets us know. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, I just don't trust computers. You know, they can be manipulated. You no know, data is easily manipulated if you get the right algorithm going. Well, so could so could mail-in balloting. You know, um, I was talking to the chair of our county GOP uh, the other day. I was texting him, and someone had sent me an article about one of the county GOP. Uh, conventions that was going on about some hanky-panky. And I read the article, and then I forwarded it to our county GOP chair, asking him if he was aware of it. Now, I was part of the county convention and the state convention. I was a delegate at both. And um, when this one individual, and I'm not going to name it. If anyone's going, what county, what county? I'm not going to name it uh, because there is going to be an ongoing investigation. Uh, But when this one county kept on coming up to vote, you know, the vast majority of us were all voting for these one slate of candidates. And no matter what we did, they always went in the opposite direction. And mm. it was very curious because they carried an extremely large blocks of delegates, a very large block of delegates. Where our, uh, our delegation had only 29 members, they had something like 82, which could easily, you know, something like that could have easily overturned you know, the expected results. Thankfully, we prevailed, and the two counties that were causing the ruckus did not. Uh, But what we found out was one of the women that wanted a recount and certain delegate votes to be counted turned around to our county GOP chair. She goes, well, I harvested, harvested these delegate votes. And um, when I noticed that they didn't check off this one particular box, I checked it off for them. Excuse me? Mm. She altered a delegate's ballot. She admitted to our county chair that these ballots she's taking from this county that's in dispute and altered their ballot. And if that could happen here in South Carolina, which is considered completely red, except for the Charleston area and Columbia area. That's a scary thought. That is of a course very, there were very no, scary Of course, there were no ramifications, were there? At this point, not yet. Like I said, the investigation just started because our convention okay. was just a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, that's where the questions came in. And someone who challenged it, Drew McKissick, for his seat as uh, state chair, um, was one of the people behind what was going on between these two counties. Hmm. So, very interesting. Very, very interesting. That, um, understand that there's three sheriffs in Virginia who switched from Democrat to um, Republican over all this anti-police rhetoric. Yes, yes. That's a there's good three thing. counties. Yep. 
And Virginia is one of those that has sanctuary Second Amendment counties. The sheriffs will not enforce any federal incursion or even the uh, governor's incursion on Second Amendment rights. So here in South Carolina, we now have uh, passed open carry. Um, You still do need training and you need to have a permit, uh, but eventually they're going to look at doing away with the permit, just requiring training, which is common sense. You know, you don't want someone handling a firearm that's an airhead, you know. You want someone that's responsible, and you still want the background checks to make sure a felon doesn't get the gun. But um, they want to move eventually to no permitting. Uh, But right now we do have open carry. It's not official yet. There are some details being worked out between SLED, which is the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, and the governor's office, just fine-tuning whatever regulations that will go with this new carry. Uh, but we will have open carry here in the state of South Carolina. Matter of fact, um, I was holding a Tea Party meeting one time when uh, state one of our state senators was at the meeting as a guest speaker. And we were talking about open carry. And he looks at me. And, Curtis, you know, I'm a little slip of a thing. He goes, where the heck do you hide a concealed weapon on you, Ann? <laughs> I was like, it's not easy. <laughs> So that means that I don't have to worry about someone being aware that I'm carrying a firearm. You know, if I have the permit to carry it, go. (laughs) Try to take it from me. Try to take it. I I once saw a video. I don't know what social media site it was on, but there was a young woman. She wasn't a big woman. And the thing about it was, she had like about seven different weapons hidden on her, and you didn't know she had it until she, she, you know, exposed where they were. I was very amazed, <laughs> very amazed mm-hmm. that she could put those things all over her body, you know, and, and wear just a jacket, and you would never know she was packing heat. So, you well, know, there's places. Well, I had to travel back and forth with my uh, off-duty, which I was able to conceal. And usually I had a Levi's blue jean jacket. And if people know, there's also an inside pocket. A little 38 fits in there really nice. So and women can do it if, if, we, if we think about it. But it's always not. If you want to look good, it's not always possible. So yeah. I'm just... Just reminding Colin, because I know it's him a little while ago, and I know that I spoke to him just a couple of hours ago. Just is reminding he in the same time zone? Yeah, 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 he is. He's oh, only okay. here along the East Seaboard over in North Carolina. He's got some new projects going out, and his book, like I said, is absolutely excellent. So, uh, Colin, call in, call in. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, uh, Sarge is reminding us today is the 79th, the 79th anniversary of the uh, of the Battle of Midway. Yeah. And, you know, it was uh, Memorial uh, Day weekend um, this pa- on just this past Monday. And um, I was watching nonstop on TMC all the war movies. And you stop and think about it. And then when I read the books at the same time as I was watching the movies, the toll on human life and what these men and women went through uh, to win this war is absolutely stunning. 
absolutely stunning. And Colin just popped up, so let me bring his mic on live. And welcome back, our friend. Oh, God, good Lord, Colin, how long have I known you? 11 years? Good afternoon, and welcome back on to Sudden Sense. Yeah, thanks. I was busy with Kevin Sorbo on a Zoom meeting, so I got tied up, but I'm free now. <laughs> yeah, Kevin's working with you on a new project, isn't he? Several, actually, yeah, and we'll be able to divulge the details of that about September. But, uh, yeah, it's it's coming along. Absolutely excellent, excellent. And I just mixed, mixed my pages up. I had my notes here, so bear with me. You know how I do this. I don't write anything down on paper. I've got little <laughs> post-it notes in your book. You have a book out, uh, Colin Heaton with Heaton Lewis Books. Your uh, ex-wife, Anne-Marie Lewis, wrote it with you. It's called Above the Reich, Deadly Dogfights, Blistering Bombing Raids, and Other War Stories from the Greatest American Air Heroes of World War II in their own words. And um, you as a historian have written a lot about World War II and World War I. And it's interesting how that can absolutely overlap into going into Korea and Vietnam with some of these aces and uh, aerial heroes that you write about. And you chose five men, and you didn't go beyond that. Why only just five? Because I had a word count limitation from the publisher. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of figured that. Um, Because I I was having so much fun reading it as I was watching the Memorial Day Marathon on TCM. And some of these I did know about, some of them I didn't know about, like James Doolittle and Curtis LeMay. And I know uh, the name Hayden came around in some of the other books that you've written about, so I was familiar with it. But I was not familiar with Robert Samuel Johnson. And what I found was hysterical. You made an appointment to go meet him, to interview him. But something strange happened beforehand. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I I walked into a restaurant and grabbed something to eat, and there he was sitting there. And... uh, so he looked at me, I looked at him, and he goes, Colin? I said, Bob? He goes, have a seat. <laughs> so. Well, what I found amazing is, well, you do have the natural talent in doing interviews, to uh, bring things out in these uh, war heroes that you do interview. Um, but a lot of these guys, all you had to do was just prime them with a single question, and you just let them rip. Is yeah, it because I, I, so I, much- I, well, I have 10, 10 or 20 questions that I start with, basic questions. And then if someone triggers something on a question, I'll expand from there. But I just let them flow. I just let them go with it and recorded it. And, uh, and you know, like with Curtis LeMay, you know, he was a bourbon guy and a scotch guy. And I was a scotch guy. And Robin Olds is a scotch guy. So you have a few drinks and you, you, you get good stories. Well, you know, I'm a scotch gal. So... <laughs> Anyway, yeah, well, Robin, Robin, um, Robin was all about single malt, so I brought a bottle of a good 18-year-old with me. <laughs> now, he was unique because he was ace, wasn't he? No, no, he wasn't the first ace. He, he, was, uh, he was actually – he didn't get into the war until 43. He got into the war kind of late uh, because his graduation from West Point uh, wasn't until, I think, uh, – Late for early '43, I think, is when they graduated, and they shipped him out to uh, England after uh, he finished up his advanced pilot training. Well, you know, as um, Samuel was talking to you, 
uh, it was interesting to, to see how after the war, um, how enemies, you know, you could be fighting each other and trying to kill each other in the air. At, but when they came home, they pushed that all aside and became friends. I found that very interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, Johnson and Wolf Falk and those guys and Hans Rudel. I mean, Johnson and Rudel, most people don't know who Hans Rudel Rudel was, but he was the most decorated airman of any country in World War II. Uh, But they worked together to develop the A-10 Thunderbolt. Well, and also I found interesting is um, how many of these pilots were killed in training? You know, you would think that there was – yeah. And one of the things that he said was the war spit out the best on both sides. So, you know, it it was a tremendous toll on recruits. Yeah, it was. And a lot of the training accidents in the United States mainly was because the the pilot, uh, the student pilots were flying obsolete worn out aircraft that didn't have a good deal of maintenance on them. And a lot of them were just uh, crumbling around them. Like Robin said, I think in the, it's in the book. I mean, it's edited down because there's so much information. But when they started flying the P-38s in training, what they were getting were the original versions that didn't have superchargers, and the engines were worn out, and the old Allison engines were just sputtering and coughing. And sometimes you'd come in for a landing, lose power, and guys were just pancaking or cartwheeling across the runway. Well, you know, I found it interesting because he he was um, talking about the different planes he learned and the detail, the memory detail, the dates, places, all all those stacked numbers and the people they ran into. And here are these men in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and you did this for over a long number of years, these interviews. The amount of minutia that they were able to recall at the tip of their fingertips you know, sometimes, I, yeah. I sometimes forget where I leave my keys, but they could remember so much detail. Well, you also have to factor in that regardless of the national origin of a pilot, uh, pilots are, are by nature very intelligent creatures. They have to be. They have to be multitask masters, and they also have to be very detail-oriented. So a lot of that, I think, factors into their old age. If they don't have debilitating Alzheimer's or something of that nature – they, most of them stayed active reading. They stayed active in various aviation programs. Uh, Robin was always very active in veterans groups like Curtis LeMay was. Uh, so they stayed active mentally. And I think one of the things that really kept them going was talking to historians. I mean, these guys all loved to talk to you. It wasn't like you had to use a crowbar to get information out of them. No, it wasn't. And it was so much fun to read the book. I read it in a day and a half. And then uh... – I, what you have to know is after I booked you, uh, someone sent me over a gentleman by the name of Andrew Big, Biggio. He wrote a book that is going to follow up right behind you about the M1 Garand. He went around the country handing it to veterans and just letting their stories pour forth. So it's very funny here, mo- right after Memorial Day, we're doing this show. Colin, I'm telling you, sometimes the good Lord puts you guys in my hands at just the right time. But it, it was so interesting reading. And there's one point where, uh, and not just one point, but several times where Samuel was talking about how he almost got killed just learning how to fly these planes. He was talking about the jug. What was the jug and what happened to him on his very first flight where he almost, he almost bit the dust? Well, I can't recall the exact details without referring to the book, but uh, the jug was the P-47 Thunderbolt. And uh, by the time he jumped into it in the combat, he was flying the C model. 
Uh, and then later on, they got the D model with the bubble canopy and a, and a supercharger and a, a more powerful engine. Then they got new propellers with the wide paddle blades that gave them more more power and more pull. Uh, but Johnson had a lot of close calls in the Thunderbolt. And you may have read the part where he encountered the German ace Egon Meyer. And, uh, and that was his closest call with death. And, uh, and he even told me, he said, yeah, when I got out of that sucker, he said, when I finally landed that, that wreck, he said, I, I, I just, I just, you know, prayed. <laughs> he said, because the German didn't have to let me, he didn't have to let me go. And, uh, wow. But God, yeah, he had no, um, uh, gr- growing up, um, I lived near some of these small airfields out on Long Island, New York, and I lived not too far away from uh, where Lindenburg took off from in Roosevelt Field. So this is what really fascinates me because I used to drive through that area all the time. Um, but what I want to do is just throw some of these guys' names out at you and just let you talk what you found the most interesting about them and what drew you to Seek them out. Uh, let's start with the. We already talked about Samuel Johnson. What about James Doolittle? Now that is a very, very famous name. Well, James Doolittle. I first met him when I was in high school. Uh, he was giving a talk at a at a symposium that when I was in high school we had this history little, little history club. So we went to it, and they would have various veterans talk about World War II, whether it was aviation or ground combat or whatever. So I began meeting some of these guys, not really knowing who they were. And then afterwards, I would start doing some independent reading, and and I thought, well, later on, if they're still around, I'd like to interview them. And so I began contacting authors who had written about them, or the guys themselves, uh, or people that I knew who knew them. And after letters back and forth, back in decades before the age of internet, uh, you would get positive responses. So, hey, give me a call. I'll talk to you. Get a phone number, and set things up. And Doolittle, I met him, I think I met him first in 77, uh, 78, and I think I had my first phone call with him around 1981 or 82, and I was finally able to have a sit-down with him in 86. Uh, That was the same year I had Boynton and LeMay. Boynton's the first chapter in my next book I'm writing. (laughs) That's interesting. Oh, Pappy. Yeah, but – yeah, having the sit-downs with him was great, and I'd started off my interview methods when I was stationed in Europe. I was able to get to the Germans first, and I got uh, over a couple hundred of those guys, And uh, but able to able process. And I wrote years ago, I wrote to Ray Colonel Raymond F. Tolliver. He uh, and Trevor Council wrote the benchmark works of fighter aces of the Luftwaffe, Harito, and uh, well, they had done the initial interviews back in the late 50s through the 60s and 70s with the uh, German pilots who survived the war. So Ray Tolliver, when I was a younger guy, became sort of a mentor, and he opened the doors up. Well, the intro to get back into Doolittle was that off Gallant because I was interviewing Gallant, and he goes, have you spoken to uh, James Doolittle? And I said, well, we've had correspondence and a couple of phone calls. He goes, well, tell him I tell him I told you to talk to him. So, and he and Gallon were good buddies, even though you know they were both trying to kill each other's pilots. And uh, so I called called uh, Doolittle when I got back to the states, and he said, uh, "Oh, how is Dolfo doing?" And I said, "Oh, he says he's doing fine. Wishes you well, and this that, and the other." I have, he says I have to give him a call sometime. I said, "Yeah, give him a call." And uh, so 
I'm planning on coming out to California fairly soon, so maybe we can have to sit down. He said, yeah, well, you might want to call Curtis LeMay. He wants to talk to you as well. So I'm like, okay, fine. And uh, <laughs> so it just it just kind of steamrolled from there, really. Yeah, I've always fascinated how you always just step into this stuff. But you've been doing this for so long, and you've got such a well-known name in this. And so I, I don't know why I should be surprised, but I'm, I'm always finding such joy in what you write. Because, you know, Jimmy Doolittle was so instrumental in, in saving lives by changing the tactics in which they approach targets and what targets to choose to, to go after. And he probably saved a lot of lives doing that. But... Um, Robin Olds, oh, what a character. What an absolute character. And of all things, being married to a Hollywood starlet. Yeah, Ella Raines. Uh, that, that's uh, Christina's mother, uh, and I've, I've been in touch with her pr- pretty fairly often. But, uh, yeah, Robin was a character and a half, and my uh, connection to him was Buddy Hayden because he and Buddy Hayden were neighbors as well as uh, fighter pilots in the war, but they both lived in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and, and I already had an interview scheduled with Buddy uh, following a few phone calls, and he said, and I said, I'd like to grab anybody else, you know, and he goes, well, how about Robin Olds? I'm like, whoa, okay, we, we can work that in, and uh, so I did Hayden, and I did Olds, and I, some of these interviews took more than just one city. Most people don't understand that when you do an interview with somebody, yeah, you have to sit down for three, four hours or a couple of days, maybe if you're lucky. But there's a lot of editing going on. There's a lot of back and forth. I always sent the material written out to them for approval, and they'd always say, oh, I forgot to tell you this, or I made a mistake on this date, or something. There's always something that comes up that has to be changed, which is normal. But Robin Olds was one of those few guys to where when you sat down with him and he gave you the information, there was very little editorial manipulation afterwards. Christina wrote the book with her father called Fighter Pilot, the story of Robin Olds, which is a great book, and I suggest everyone read it. And his book has some information that I didn't have from the interviews because he couldn't recall certain names sometimes, but it was in the book. So I contacted Christina. I said, yeah, I got your book, and I have your father's old interview, but I'm going to you know, parenthetically uh, enter some information from your book and cite your book as the source because this is information that I didn't have from the interview, and she was fine with that. Uh, a very, very interesting and colorful character. And uh, I was laughing at all the bleeps that you had to put in there because of his language. But he was someone that just would not take crap from anyone. And even when, you know, he knows that the, the brass was going to give him a rash, he just went full steam ahead. Robin Olds did not. He was he, – he's, he, he's the kind of guy – you don't get many of those in the military back then, but you sure as hell don't get them today. And he's the kind of guy that didn't care about politics. He didn't care about career. He didn't care about rank. He cared about getting the job done, kind of like LeMay. Uh, and he just went full throttle. And if it meant just kicking off somebody a few pay grades above him, he didn't care. He just he just did it. Call uh, no, it. I- this is Curtis, my co-host. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I'm going to interview you real quick here. I see that you were a Marine <laughs> sniper, right? Yeah, that was back in the day. <laughs> and every every Marine is a, a rifleman, right? Oh, yeah. Regardless of your MOS, you start out as a basic rifleman. Oh, yeah. Well, what was it like being a sniper? I mean, did you really 
have opportunity to um, put into um, real-world situations what you had trained for? Well, I was in the Army before then, and I'd already done I'd already done that kind of work, and I got out of the Army, and I was going to go do something else, like go to school, and a friend of mine was a Marine recruiter, and he talked to me into joining up, and, uh, and he was a Marine sniper, and he was a recruiter buddy of mine, so... I kind of said, well, why not? It's just another adventure. So, but as far as that that stuff goes, uh, due to the issues of non-disclosure agreements, I'll have to leave it at that. Yeah, I was just asking because I know there's a, a lot of people who train, especially in special forces, and they train so hard, and they never really get to use that training in a, a real-world situation. No, I, I never really saw any serious active combat. I've pulled a few security details and things of that nature, and a couple of things got nuts. But uh, I never got involved in anything really heavy or hot. That Like my son did two tours in Afghanistan. His story was far different from mine, and he was a Marine. But, uh, no, I, I had some adventures, but nothing nothing really life-threatening. Uh, well, I love the situation, maybe, but well, that's nothing a, really critical. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Well, it's good for me because at least I yeah. was alive to have a have a son. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Colin, just to turn the tables on uh, Curtis, who has written twenty seven, twenty eight books, he's a squid. Uh, he's off of the what was it the USS Theodore Roosevelt? United uh, States. Curtis. Yeah. I was on the Nimitz and the Saratoga. Oh, the Nimitz. Saratoga. Yeah. Uh, during the mothership. Yeah. That's correct, and a few other um, uh, real-world incidents. Now, Curtis, they don't you've declare never wars. Divulged, you... They don't declare wars anymore. They just have little um, <laughs> little incidents. <laughs> well, Curtis, you've never disclosed to us what your MOS was. Oh, I worked in um, Navy Supply and Naval Intelligence, so I worked well, in CIC. <laughs> Oh right, yeah. <laughs> no, that's it. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I was an infant, I, yeah, I was an infantryman with a crossover to Intel, uh, the two shops. So yeah, I'm familiar with it. Very interesting. And, and I got out back in '92, and I was just amazed at the technology they had back then. You know, I can only wonder what they have now. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. The, the, the toys and gadgets that even my son ten years ago in Afghanistan that they got to play with. It's uh, it's like Star Wars compared to the stuff back in the eighties, you know. Yeah, it's, it's oh, yeah. funny. And thinking back, I've known you when he just went in. How how amazing! That's how long I've known you. Oh wow. <laughs> well, you, well, next time you drive down south here, you got you know let me know and we'll stop and have a cocktail together. Yeah, I have to have to get down there at some point in time anyway. There's probably going to be a couple of engagements. I might join General Livingston at because I'm still writing his speeches, and he's still traveling around the country giving his speeches that I write and all that. So, well, I don't think we there. ever got him on. I don't think we've ever got him on the show. I think we started doing a couple of times and it never went through. But we we have to work on that because you do have to drive right past me to get to him. So I know that. So <laughs> you gotta let me know. Um, oh, we'll do. Yeah, I, 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 I thought he did the show uh, after Noble Warrior came out. I thought he was on the show once back in 2011 what? or something. Well, I'm going to have to go back to the archives and see because now you got to remember I've been doing this going on 11 years. Woo, time flies when you're having fun. But, yeah, uh, uh, August will be 11 years. Holy cow. Hmm. But um, 
your book is really fantastic. It's Above the Reich, Deadly Dog Bites, Blistering Bombing Raids. I mean, some of these things are so riveting, and some of them also break my heart when you hear the description of escorting the bombers and just seeing the bombers disintegrate and the men just falling out. Uh, it, some of the stuff is just heart-wrenching and how they were able to hold it all in and do what they did through all of this horror that they lived through. But it's also exciting to see the dogfights and see how they were able to adapt uh, the machinery, especially when the Germans came out using jets against their props. Um, it's a fascinating book. I'm telling people that they should get it. They can find it on your website, which is Heaton Lewis Books, or go to Amazon, correct? Yeah, that's correct. All right. Do you have any other new projects you can let us know about or – yeah, that I'm, uh, well, well, besides the, the film stuff I'm working on, uh, we're working right now on a docudrama adaptation for The Star of Africa. You may remember that book. Uh, we're working on that as a docudrama, uh, 90 minutes worth. And uh, we have an actor, uh, John Connie, Dr. John Connie, actually, uh, who people may remember from the 77 film The Wild Geese. Uh, he played uh, the mercenary Sergeant Jesse. He also did Black Panther as the king. He did the voiceover for one of the uh, Lion King variants. He was in The Ghost in the Darkness as the tribal chief narrator with Michael Douglas and Doc Tilmer. And uh, he's on board to do the narration and also stars the older Matthias telling the story, doing a retrospective flashback in time on the uh, story of Hans Marseille and, and uh, Matthew Lotuku's friendship. So we're working on that, working on another project uh, about Lydia Lidviak, the 21-year-old uh, the female ace of the Soviet Union, working on that as a documentary. And we've got two film projects uh, from, and one TV series option from Four War Bower about Pete Cooler that, in South Africa that we're trying to get off the ground, which has a producer with it right now. But the book I'm writing now is a follow-up to About the Reich, and that's going to be on the Pacific pilots primarily, uh, wow. looking at uh, Joe Foss, Greg Boynton, Tex Hill, uh, some of those guys, uh, Jim Howard, who received the Medal of Honor. The book, if we agree to the lineup, the book will have four out of the five guys in the book, four would be Medal of Honor recipients. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastic. Well, Con, we'll be speaking again soon. You know, you got me on text and speed dial, so <laughs> talk to you soon. Okay, talk to you guys later. All right, check out check out Colin Heaton at HeatonLewisBooks.com, and the book is Above the Reich. It is an absolutely fascinating book, which leads us into our next guest, also writing about World War II, and this has a personal touch to him. I want to welcome to the show for the first time, Andrew Biggio, a, a fellow paisan. Hey, Andrew. ciao. How are you? Good. Can you hear me well? I can hear you beautifully. You're calling into the heart of the Tri-Command. I've got Paris Island a couple of miles in one way, the Marine Corps Air Station in the other, and the Naval Hospital. And I sit right smack in the, in the triangle. <laughs> so Semper yeah, Fi, Marie. The, the, the heat today in Massachusetts <laughs> reminds me of one of those muggy days on Paris Island. Well, now, I've got a question now, because uh, before I joined NYPD, I was up working out of uh, – uh, 
downtown Boston on Fremont Street by Government Center. And uh, uh-huh. I lived in Waltham uh, and also at one point up in Reading uh, area also. Uh, where are you located? I'm just curious where you're, you're, you serve. Well, I used to work in uh, right at Government Center. I was an MBTA cop for my first five years on the job. And, I probably walked um, right past you out of the green line. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then uh, I have relocated and um, transferred to my hometown of uh, Winthrop, Massachusetts. So that's the blue line. Oh, it's Orient Heights in East Boston. So that's where I am. Oh, I got that Boston accent with your pocket car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I couldn't resist. A little blue line humor. Anyway, <laughs> um, you wrote a fascinating book, and I actually read it all within one day. That's how good it was. And I found it very, very interesting. But you centered it around an M1 Garand. Um, something led you up to that. And on a whim, you decided to buy this World War II rifle. What was going on in your head? <laughs> yeah, what was going on was, um, you know, I had done uh, multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, as a Marine infantryman. And I came home completely unscathed and fine and I started to develop a little bit of survivor's guilt, not um, necessarily for the service members of my generation, but it was uh, my grandfather's brother who was killed in World War II. So uh, the first Andrew Biggio, who I'm named after, killed in Italy in 1944 uh, while fighting uh, the Germans just kind of north of Barberino, Italy. And I started to read his letters he wrote home before he was killed, and one of the letters was how much he enjoyed the M1 Grand Rifle. So, of course, I had to go rush out and buy one. <laughs> See what Uncle Andy had, had fell in love with. you know. Um, it, but that is one of the most famous rifles of World War II. Just about every single infantryman carried it. And you go through um, – you go start off with – Believe it or not, a next-door neighbor. And everyone has one of these neighbors that you really don't talk to. You know about them. You see them. You wave hi. Uh, the, the grouch on the block, whatever. And no one really goes and talks to them. And that's something that's really bad with our society today. You know, we are so self-contained. We've got our smart devices and our heads in them. And you don't talk to your next-door neighbors over the fence anymore. But you took that step and you went and learned about him. And that started the ball rolling for you. Right. Well, I, you know, after I buy the M1 Grand, uh, you know, I'm playing with it in my house. I'm showing some family members. And, of course, it's, you know, they just think, oh, hey, just another gun. And, you know, then I bought the rifle, and it, it might have brought me some sort of uh, peace or some sort of fulfillment momentarily, but it, it drifted. And I decided, to, you know, that my neighbor fought in the Battle of Okinawa. So I said, hey, why don't I go show him this? I'll bring this to him. And I remember ringing his doorbell. I'll never forget going into his living room. And, you know, Joe was about 91 at the time. This is going back almost five years ago. And, you know, he was really skinny, frail, uh, weaker than he ever was. And when I put the rifle into his hands, it was like he was 19 years old again. He, he put it into his shoulder. He was aiming in. He was waving around, smiling from ear to ear. And I just I was, couldn't believe that this instrument, this tool, this weapon, has would just was like a time machine. It brought him back, and we just we talked about the Battle of Okinawa for over like two hours. And 
I asked him to sign the buttstock of my rifle because I always wanted to remember this moment. And, you know, he argued with me that it was such a beautiful weapon. He didn't want to mark it up. But I said, please, I insist. He signs the rifle. I leave. And when I look down at it, look down at his signature, I just said, man, I got to get as many more signatures on this rifle as possible. And I was on fire ever since. Five years later, and over 200 World War II veterans have held my M1 and signed their name to it. Well, you don't have 200 people in your book, that's for sure, but you picked out certain ones. Um, how did you judge which one made the grade for the book or not? Yeah, that was very, very tough. Um, by the time the book went to print, I think I had 175 people listed. And then, you know, through through editing and publication and back and forth, and uh, I, I reached that solid number of 200. But there was like so many men I could write a second volume on. But to answer your question, I had to go with the guys who could tell me everything. So in your 90s, all right, I'm not meeting these men when they were 40, 50, 60, and 70. Like some authors have had the absolute privilege and luck. Um, I was born in 1987. So uh, the average World War II was already in its like 60s by the time I was born. Um, and so I had to find, really choose the veterans who could clearly remember every detail. That way I could corroborate what they said and actually write about it and be factually correct. Um, so, and then plus stories that were going to captivate an audience and bring more awareness to the World War II generation. And that's, that's basically what I, I, I was forced to do. Um, and as you know, I met a lot of veterans with dementia. Maybe they don't remember details. Some of them purposely forgot about the war after 75 years. So it was difficult. I was uh, chasing ghosts on this on this book, but I, I'd say I did a pretty damn good job. <clears throat> I say, I would say you did a very, very good job. As a matter of fact, you just made me feel old. If you were born in 1987, I was on foot patrol in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> you just made me yeah. feel very old. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Matter of fact, uh, one of our good listeners in the chat room, he goes by the name of Sarge because he served in the uh, the military. Um, he ordered your book yesterday. So, all right. Mm-hmm. And the book just got, just was, uh, went into sale on the first. So, and yesterday was my birthday. Anyway, made oh, me even feel older. <laughs> happy birthday. But, you know, you, thank you. Uh, but you, you, didn't limit yourself to the European theater. You chose, you know, all different types to give a flavor of what was going on in Europe, uh, as well as on the Pacific coast. And the details of the battles that these men had gone through and what they experienced and saw is absolutely phenomenal. Um, but you also went out of your way to also show uh, some of the things that were happening, say, for example, with Japanese Americans, they were being interned, interred in the, these concentration camps, we can call them or whatever you want, these internment camps, because the United States wasn't sure if they were loyal to, to Japan or to the United States. And yet these were some of the toughest troops that fought for the United States, whether it be in Italy or in Europe or wherever they went. They were wanted because they were the fiercest. I have to say one of my favorite chapters is about Mr. Lawson Sakai, who is from California, and Lawson was turned away to enlist. After Pearl Harbor, him and three, four of the white white guys 
go down to the recruiting office to enlist. And they tell Lawson he's a, they label him on his paperwork, enemy alien, meaning he's not allowed to join because he's Japanese. So they leave the recruiting station. His friends are all high-fiving and, and getting ready. You know, they're going to have, sh- you know, shipping out dates. And Lawson is devastated. He's holding his head down. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated because and he literally said to the recruiter, but I'm an American, you know, and I could feel his pain 75 years later. But, you know, pain is temporary and pride is forever because Congress eventually allows Japanese Americans to serve in the military. Okay, they experiment with what's called the 100th Battalion and then later on the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And they go on to be the most highly decorated regiment of, of World War II. And their stories of valor and heroism are just, they're unmatched. They're unmatched. They fought all the way up to Italy, um, through Italy, excuse me, get pulled out of Italy to reinforce the 36th Division in France, uh, are assigned with rescuing the, a, a lost battalion of, of soldiers because every general was trying to rush to be the first one into Germany. And they accidentally basically got one of their battalions surrounded in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Uh, lost 200 men to rescue this battalion, of which I believe there was only 200 left. Um, I always so many statistics between the Pacific War and the European theater. I I uh, I never give out exact numbers when I'm on radio stations because I <laughs> get them all mixed up. But I I think you get the the idea that how amazing these guys were. And Lawson has three Purple Hearts, two Bronze Stars. I mean, he was just I got to go to their 75th anniversary reunion in Las Vegas and just sit there and listen to them and look at all the relatives of all the Japanese Americans who were put into the, um, you know, the camps um, because the government wasn't sure of their allegiance after Pearl Harbor attack. There's so many absolutely wonderful stories in here and the details that they're able to recall is absolutely phenomenal. Um, there was one unit, and I, f- I find that how some of these keep on looping around to the same battles, like the Battle of the Bulge. Um, uh-huh. The uh, You talk about the Golden Acorn, this one 87th Infantry Division, and how you know everyone thought, well, huh, they're, 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 they're new guys. They don't even know what the heck they're doing. And they end up rescuing the Bastards of Bestone. Yeah, the 87th Division got to Europe relatively late. We're talking late uh, November, early December. The uh, the division, and they, you know, they didn't have, a, they didn't skip a beat. They just went continuous on, on no long breaks, no going back to England for furlough, none of that kind of stuff. And they, they, they truly have a baptism under fire. They're basically thrusted right into. Um, some some premature combat in, in France, but then they're really did at the Battle of the Bulge. is where they took the majority of their casualties. Um, brand new kids, fresh from the States, freezing, cold weather, and uh, just liberating all these Belgian towns that had been brought back and forth and liberating the outskirts of um, of the Bastogne area, being that, 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 you know, part of Patton's army to... Uh, to help come to the rescue. Well, you know what I found interesting is that how we're, once you found one veteran, 
they were able to then lead you to other veterans in the area. For example, you when you were at the mm-hmm. very start of this little quest, you ran across John McAllister. And he was up in Worcester, Massachusetts. So you know I used to live in Massachusetts. If I say Worcester, not Worcester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he started he started going through a Rolodex, an index, and saying, all right, fine, you should talk to this guy, you should talk to that guy, which led you to Ernie with the 87th. And then he, in turn, led you down. And it's interesting how you kept on being led to these individuals, to their stories. It's as if after all these years, they finally wanted to have someone listen to them talk. It's so true. I mean, I'm sitting there in the president of the Massachusetts Battle of the Bulge Association's apartment. He's 96. I think I was 29 at the time. And he's got stacks of, of paper and addresses and, and meeting notes from the beginning of their chapter formation all the way to their last meeting in like 20, you know, 16 or something or 14. And he's going through the role that's of who he thinks is still alive and, and basically vouching for me. And I'm able to then meet these men who are, you know, able to connect me. I mean, John McAuliffe, you know, he was one of those guys. He outlived his wife, never had any kids, was alone. And here he is handing me a Nazi dagger and his uniform to me, a stranger, you know? Uh, and we, I mean, we go on to become very close, but, in the beginning, you know, I was a stranger to him, and it was almost like he was just waiting for me. And uh, I'll never think of it. This is the first time I've actually talked about him on the radio, and uh, it's making me think a lot about him now and how responsible he is for the success of my book in just, you know, 48 hours. Well, like I said, sometimes the good Lord just leads us, and if we're only willing to listen, the the beauty and the miracles that can happen. Uh, But that's the interesting thing. Everywhere you went, someone wanted to give you a token of the visit, something that they felt needed to be passed on. And so Mm -hmm. what have you done with all these tokens? You know, at first I would refuse um, them because I felt like I was taking advantage of the elderly. And I, I just walked into your house. I have no idea if you have, you know, the beginning stages of dementia. And you're trying to hand me X, Y, and Z. I don't know if you have family members. I don't know if someone else was hoping to get this item. So I refused at first, and now I regret it because I've had men try to give me German pistols and 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 all sorts of stuff. And I just, I you know, I didn't want to be taken advantage of them. And then after, you know a bunch of different visits, these men would then go ahead and pass away and I'd find out their stuff went at auction sales and, or, you know, some, you know, some, um, you know, real estate attorney took, took whatever he wanted. And, and then I started to say, you know what, let's, I'm going to, anything they offer me, I'm absolutely going to take because it's going to go with the rifle. It's going to be a traveling exhibit and dedicated to these men. This is the pistol that, you know, Staff Sergeant Joe Smith brought home. This is the uniform that belonged to Dennis Kilpatrick, you know, this, this kind of stuff. So that's what I have. I have a whole museum set up in my, in my, my workstation right now, and it will go with the rifle when I hope it goes from museum to museum to educate Americans. Andrew. Well, you know, yeah, this is my co-host Curtis C.S. Bennett. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah. I was just curious. um, How do you do interviews and, and like 2021, do you do use videos? Do you use digital recorders? How, what was the process you used to um, get information from these veterans? 
That's a great question. So I come from a generation of veterans, Iraq, Afghanistan, where if you came home and you talked about what you did or what you saw or you tried to be a hero, then you were made fun of, you were looked down upon, um, you're an attention grabber. So when I started meeting with these men with just the rifle, I would just simply press record on my phone, like the video, and then face it down on the kitchen table or wherever we were because I didn't want to feel intrusive in the last stages of their lives by sticking a camera in their face. Then I want to say about 15 veterans later, I got the courage to lift my phone up. This is iPhone video we're talking now. It's five, six years ago. And then I started a social media page on Instagram, and the Instagram stopped getting thousands of followers. Like, I'm up to 30,000 followers. And now I started to realize I need to have a little bit more courage, film these men because America wants it. America wants to hear it. These men are in the last days of their life, and now some of them are deciding to finally talk because I think a lot of them don't want to die with secrets or they realize how uneducated they left their own family members because the World War II generation was also the silent generation. So um, to, to, in conclusion of your question, I went and finally got, uh, you know, like a, I think it was like a three or $4,000 Canon camera, and I'm doing like professional interviews now. And because I have no choice, this is a race against time, and I'm trying to capture the best. Wow, that's very interesting. Because in your book, you you give the introduction of how you met the person, you let the person talk, but then at the end, you have them pose with the rifle after it's been signed. How many total signatures do you have on that rifle now? Um, 200 on the dot, on the dot, and I want to go and just keep going, but at the same time... Um, you know, it's been five years. I have a two-year-old son, uh, another son on the way, and my family oh, needs me home now. And this <laughs> is all, you know, I got married, had kids all during this this process. You know, this was all happening in in the process. So now I got to be what a lot of the World War II veterans taught me was how to be a good dad. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Very, very interesting. You know, there's so many great stories in there, but one that really ripped my heart. And when I read about you walking in this house, uh, the conflict, especially in today's day and age and how you know politics has made us so divisive, um, there was one of Patton's tankers. And mm-hmm. that story just ripped my gut because at that point, you know, our military was segregated. For some reason, they didn't think that African-Americans could fight in battle or just were not mentally capable. But they proved, just like the Japanese did, to be fierce fighters. I mean, the Tuskegee Airmen never lost uh, anyone that they escorted. You know, those red-tailed fighter pilots did a hell of a lot better job than most of our other guys did. And everyone wanted them to escort. But the same thing with Patton's tankers. And what he went through after he was severely wounded just just tore my heart out. Uh-huh. And he said something yeah. very interesting when you started to interview him. And so did his, his daughter. His daughter's reaction and how that changed things and then what he said to you afterwards I found stunning. Yeah, um, that's the 761st Tank Battalion you're talking about, which was the um, first armored unit to ever see action in World War II. Uh, First black armored tanker ever to see combat. 
and they lived up to their name and they're proud of their name, Patton's Panthers. And from what we know, uh, Robert Andre, who I found living in Alabama, is the last known survivor of of the of the original members of that tank battalion. And that's coming right from the 761st Association and other authors that have written about that that particular unit. And so here you have a man, a black man, who not only took shrapnel to his thighs, his arms, his elbow, never had the full use of his of his right arm again. He's in bandages. He's in cast. And there's a colonel walking into a tent in France, and he's handing out Purple Hearts, and he's, he's telling the men, great job, good job, your country's proud of you, amazing work. To each wounded soldier, and he gets to Robert Andrews' cot and says, what's the matter with you, boy? You trip over a bazooka? And I can't even imagine... I just I can't I can't fathom it I really can't um, it makes me want to go back in time and just start slapping people around you know um, th- this guy this guy is one of my heroes and I underline heroes four times because not only that but he came back to America and isn't even allowed to wait in the same si- uh, same part of the train station as other people and still he's bandaged up on crutches this and he looks down at himself and says. Lord, is this what I got all this for? He looks at his arms, he looks at his legs, is this really what I sacrificed for this country? But what I love about Robert Andre is he never really told that story. I was pulling it out of him in front of his family. So this guy is such an inspiration because not only did he battle Nazism over in Europe, come home, deal with racism. He never felt sorry for himself. He didn't use it as an excuse. The guy came home, had eight children, Worships every Sunday. His wife is still with him to this day. They're married 75-plus years. And he became a very successful, honorable man. And I just – I love him to death, and I hope that I'm able to bring him back to France to show him where, his, where he was wounded and where his tank was destroyed. Oh, that would be absolutely awesome. But what I found interesting is the reaction of the daughter, because you're saying, here you are, this white guy walking into their home with a gun in your hand. What are they going to think? Mm-hmm. And then she starts almost like challenging you, like, how would you hear about us? How would you know about him? But yeah, it turns out yeah, there was right, a... You know. well, yeah, go they, ahead. They basically, yeah, sorry. So um, people should be protective of elderly, right, right now, because as in law yeah. enforcement, which I am, they're like, they're getting scanned all the time. There's calls that come into the house, these people show up to the door, promise these elderly people a world and they end up getting turned upside down and now here i am flying in from you know massachusetts showing up with a gun like well how did you hear about my father what you know and it was uh, their brother vincent who ended up dying of cancer okay so vincent works for gulf power company and they did an employee's spotlight type thing in, in alabama where vincent is then talking about how his father was with the 761st tank battalion article floating around the internet from years ago and i pulled up robert andrew to see if he was still alive and he was he invited me to alabama to meet him and when i told the daughters how i heard of their father it it was basically vincent connecting the family together again you know although he had passed on they were so delighted to hear that you know i didn't just you know look this guy up on in a in a phone booth but i 
it was his because of Vincent that I found him. And the mother was so pleased to hear that. And it was a way of, like, you know, Vincent saying hello to them again, as far as I see it. Wow. It is a very fascinating book. And, and some of the things is so interesting. Uh, for example, you had where um, Clarence Corimer uh, with the 106th Infantry Division, um, they get they don't even get a chance to really fight. They send them over there as a relief where they think they're like in uh, uh, kiddie land, you know, nothing ever happens here. They're told they're only given one clip each and they expect them to hold the fort and they end up being captured. And this one guy got marched around so many times that out of the entire group, only a very small handful were left alive. And you mm-hmm. title that chapter, no Stalag. Yeah, no Stalag because Clarence was never put in a German prison camp, which they called Stalags. And I found that just fascinating compared to all the other prisons of war I had interviewed. They were always put in a German prison camp. And for some reasons, Clarence was marched around Europe. He, he called it a death march. He could not talk about this story without weeping and crying into his, in his, you know, well into his mid-90s telling me this story. And ultimately, it wasn't until I got over to Belgium that I found out why he was never – I had to go to Belgium, see where he was captured, and talk to the historians over there to find out why he was never put in a prison camp. And apparently what they did was they took a lot of the non-commissioned officers that were captured in that unit. That unit was only in Europe for two weeks, and they had the biggest surren- one of the biggest surrenders since the American Civil War. Between seven and 8,000 men had to surrender. So Clarence is part of a group that's getting marched to a prison camp on the other side of Germany when it is then overrun by the Russians. So then, of course, what do they do? They turn around and start marching the other way. And it, I don't think we know exactly how many miles he marched, but I know that there was 50 men that started and only about a dozen who, who were left at the end of it. You know, and they were just riddled with disease, malnourished, and he survived. It's amazing how he survived, just eating snow and grass. At one point, cow dung. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the treatment these men got and how they managed just in the end to survive. And still, all these years, the power of and the pain is is so ripe on the pages of your book. You know, believe it or not, you are a talented writer. And uh, you know what I would love to see you do? Take all that film and audio clip and put together a documentary. And uh, maybe if you reach out to Colin Heaton, our previous guest, maybe he can help you and guide you on how to do that. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sitting on all this. You know, I, I don't consider myself a good interviewer. Um, you know, but... And what I mean by that is shaky camera, you know, the light glaring in my thing. So it's not like I'm this great <laughs> YouTuber who has uh, spectacular uh, videos. But the point is, is all I wanted to do was get the story, re-listening to it at home and write it. And uh, luckily I did it that way because the book is the number one bestseller within, you know, under 24 hours. And it's it's doing phenomenal. And, Everyone so far tells me that they're in love with it. So either they're just BSing me or, or it's the truth. But <laughs> I think it's true. Well, so. well, listen, if I can sit down and read it, and I'm reading a PDF copy, so what you have to do is send me a hard copy signed <laughs> so I can mm-hmm. put it on my bookshelf. No, no problem. Or my no other problem at all. 
But despite the fact here you're working full time in law enforcement, you just restarted a family, you're doing these interviews flying all over the place. On top of that, you start a nonprofit for wounded warriors. Where do you get the time to even breathe? Yeah, you're right. I finally hit a wall, though. I finally hit a wall. Um, you know, I, I started a motorcycle charity ride, you know, 10 years ago in Boston. In Boston for severely wounded veterans. You know, they were they were guys and girls who served in my wars who came home. Um, loss of limb, burned, blind, paralyzed. And I just wanted to do something for them because I knew they were never going to be the same again and you know every cent goes to them i don't collect a salary i'm a full-time police officer i love my job and i could never you know profit off severely wounded veterans so for 11 years i've been doing that motorcycle charity ride and it you know it did play a part in in the following and in the support i have with this new world war ii hobby so well, you know what, Andrew? It is a fantastic book. There's a link on our show page, so when people listen in the archives, they can click on the link to the rifle, go directly to the book, and order it. And as I said, Sarge in the chat room has already ordered his yesterday, so hopefully there's going to be a bunch more sales uh, after you hang up. I want to thank you, and God bless you for the hard work you're doing. And you know what? God bless you. The same Thanks thing they used to me. say as same thing they used to say to me as we turned out: be safe out there and put your vest on. Amen. All right. God bless. Andrew, big, big, you know, check him out. The Rifle is an absolutely fascinating book. Uh, as Curtis is bringing our next guest in on the line, uh, we'll wait for that and get the show rolling. Um, we have, oh, my goodness. I, I really wanted to say something to him about uh, AOC, but uh, AOC recently did a, a brilliant statement that uh, she felt like she was in combat on Jan- January 6th. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a man that's all combat. Well, let's welcome onto the show our next guest, Beth Heath. She is the founder of We Can Be Heroes Foundation. Good afternoon, Beth. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm fine. And thank you for the invitation to visit with Southern Sense. <laughs> oh, you're more than welcome. <laughs> Well, you know, I was I was looking through your website and I found it very interesting. You know, how did you come up with this idea and and who do you target to? Okay, well, we've just all, I think, seen firsthand the American exceptionalism throughout our country. And the We Can Be Heroes Foundation honors the unsung heroes in America who give tirelessly of themselves to others. And you know that unsung heroes are all around us, from our veterans, our first responders, medical personnel, all the hardworking volunteers serving others throughout our community and nonprofits and just volunteer um, initiatives. So many of our unsung heroes give um, freely of themselves to their favorite nonprofit, like we're a nonprofit, charity as well. So there's nonprofit charities across the country and many volunteers give freely of themselves. So people call us the nonprofit nonprofit because we provide an opportunity for not only all Americans to recognize heroes, but for the volunteers in these charities to recognize their most valuable assets 
their own volunteers. So they gain the publicity um, through our initiative too, as does anyone who recognizes or thanks a hero throughout America. Very easy, I think, for Americans to recognize American heroes. They can input the info about their info about their hero, or they can thank a veteran or first responders um, on our website just by filling out a form and telling us a little bit about their hero, or they can send in their video testimonial, and and that's very effective because uh, sometimes they could have the their hero standing with them in their little video, so that is um is is very moving. So veterans can also tell their story in the same manner on our website. So we want to spread the good news about these unsung heroes that have been working in the background doing all the necessary things to keep our country uh, prosperous and united. So we want to recognize those heroes, and we call them unsung heroes. Well, you know, um, there's a young lady, uh, Ann Wolf, who put together a song for you. Uh, how did you end up <laughs> yes. having her do this? What, what happened here? Ann is uh, a patriot in herself, uh, extraordinaire. She's a singer-songwriter. She goes all over um, the country um, providing um, musical um, patriotic events at, um, for vet, and vet, for veterans especially, but also she does powwows and any any group of Americans that are gathering for the purpose of uniting the American principles. And so we invited Anne to sing at one of our hero galas, one of our events, and. So she liked what she saw, and we just fell in love with her, and she fell in love with our organization. And so she started writing a song for us, and it's just so beautiful. I don't know if you had the opportunity to listen to it, but it's just gorgeous. Um, Actually, and- our, our listeners are going to listen to it in a split second. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> So um, so Anne is a recording artist, and I think she's going to come out with it on a, um, a CD. Um, but in the meantime, uh, you can hear it um, at, on our website. And then at our events, we play it too. And um, people are like, wow, I've never heard that song. It's beautiful. So um, just just a special lady doing a, a special uh, gift for us, and we're very appreciative for that. But um, <clears throat> I want to tell you that this year's um, Heroes Gala is has been scheduled, finally, uh, for Saturday, August 21st, and it's going to be a dinner dance in recognition of the heroes who have been nominated across America. And the gala is going to be at the University of North Florida uh, Herbert University Center in Jacksonville. So it'll be mm. August 21st. So save the date. The tickets will be on our website um, fairly soon. 
but in the meantime, we just want to save the date, and we're trying to get as many of the heroes under one roof to recognize them and celebrate with them their fine work. Um, and that'll be August 21st. So one thing that I think is is fun is that when a hero is nominated as an unsung hero or a national hero, we deliver a or ship a yard sign that reads, thank you to the unsung hero who lives here. And presenting the yard sign is a lot of fun and an opportunity to meet face-to-face the unsung heroes that have been nominated. And at that time, we also invite them to the annual Heroes Gala. So the yard signs get a lot of attention. Um, So it's kind of fun. And we have one unsung hero who said, well, I live in a community where I can't put up a sign, but I'm going to put it in the back of my truck. And then someone else said, I'm going to hang it in my garage window. <laughs> so um, anyway, so that's been a lot of fun to um, share with their community that that they have been recognized for their work as an unsung hero. Oh, uh, fantastic. Well, Chris, you, let, me, let me play I, this song. Let me, let me play this okay. song for her first. All right. And then this is from Ann Wolf. It's on the website, which is unsungheroesfoundation.org. Ann Wolf, We Can Be Heroes. Blessed we are blessed 
Towards the end, Beth. It is such a beautiful, beautiful, lovely song. It is. Sure is. Yes, it's very moving. Everyone that hears it just adores it. So, um, yeah. So, you know, there are just heroes all around us everywhere we look. There are heroes in education, too. And we have a free speakers listing. And any speaker, can be on it. In fact, CS is on it, um, who will honor oh, yeah. the U.S. Constitution, uh, honor our military and veterans, or have served honorably in the U.S. military and continue to support their oath to the U.S. Constitution. That's the only prerequisite to, for a speaker to be added to our free um, speakers listing. And we initiated this because so many people came to us and said, you know, we're having an event doing X, Y, and Z. Who do you recommend? So, um, because I can't afford to go to a big speakers bureau and pay big bucks. So, um, so this is just a free service for not only our uh, Patriot speakers, but for groups that are looking for a, um, a speaker with a, a patriot agenda. So we we started that and and it's been successful. And as I say, there's just heroes everywhere we look. There are heroes in business, and we have a heroes business directory for uh, businesses and also nonprofit organizations that pledge to do three things. The first thing is that they must pledge to only hire citizens and those eligible to work in America. 
The second thing is to try to reach veterans, first responders, and military dependents on employment opportunities. And the third, of course, is to honor the Constitution. So the directory is free for businesses and nonprofits to list um, uh, their their firm and what they do. And, of course, it's free to the consumer to take a look and see what businesses are out there that meet those prerequisites. Beth. Wow. You know, I've attended many of your events. One that stands out the most to me, and I'm, I'm glad that you, you've done it over the years, was um, your Benghazi um, tribute. Tell our, our listening audience how how you got involved with the Benghazi um, story and what, what led you to um, do something about it. Right. So, you know, when Benghazi happened in um, 2014, um, yep. you know, America was shocked. We had heroes left behind. We had Americans under attack on foreign soil, and America did not come to their rescue. And so the entire nation was in shock. And um, so, you know, Congress had their... um, investigation, but nothing ever happened. Uh, I think they spent a lot of time and money doing some kind of investigation, but there was no results. And it started, people started forgetting about it. I mentioned Benghazi one time, CS, and the person said, oh, I never had it. How do you cook it? Oh, my gosh. Um, (laughs) So people started forgetting that we left heroes behind and and that heroes saved many, many Americans at that compound and and helped to to get them out to save their, their lives. But that the four heroes of Benghazi were um, an ambassador and his aide, retired Navy SEAL, both of them had accolades and were heroes in their in their own um, area. And um, they were the only ones defending, these two SEALs were the only ones defending that entire ambassador's compound and uh, so it was just so moving and so heartbreaking and 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 very soon because there was never any results of the investigation people started forgetting about it forgetting about our heroes and there's a saying that the worst thing that can happen to one is to be forgotten and and I think that's very true. So we we started doing um, annual memorial services and bringing in speakers that knew um, about Benghazi admirals and generals and and um, patriots and um, authors and so on. We started bringing in speakers that wanted to um, talk about Benghazi and what what 
happened. So um, we don't, we're not a political organization, and Benghazi is not a political situation. And we're not telling anybody uh, anything that's not a matter of record. Um, but what happened in Benghazi must never happen again. And what happened on 9-11 throughout our country, 9-11-2001, must never happen again. You know, after that event, every place you looked, you saw a flag now it's a rare occasion to see a flag. So, you know, we get busy in our lives and we forget those that have come before us and have made it so easy for us. So um, so that's the purpose of our um, Benghazi tributes is to remember those that laid down their, their lives for many. The ultimate and sacrifice. Yes, yes, it is. And and to remind Americans that we cannot leave our heroes behind. So I think it's um, Abraham Lincoln that said, um, a country does, that does not honor their heroes will not long endure. And that may not be a precise quote, but that's basically it. Um, and... Well, uh, how true. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's very ironic that Monday was Memorial Day, and uh, we have one day to remember those that gave their ultimate life, their, their ultimate sacrifice, their life laid down for this nation, and yet we spent an entire month celebrating pride. I mean, something tells us we've got uh, this backwards. It should be an entire month celebrating the men and women that gave everything for this nation and maybe one day to celebrate the LBGTQ community. Something's backwards here. <laughs> yes. I can um yeah, I can I can definitely see that. So, you know, the we were recently contacted by Guidepost, which is a um very um old um inspirational magazine. I think it was started by Norman Vincent Peale back um, right after World War II when the country was in such um, turmoil and, and, and there was sadness everywhere. And uh, so he started this guidepost. And so we were contacted by them to say, how do you honor a, an elderly veteran that many of our veterans are in um, a state of um, dementia or um, are in assisted living or, or homes and have been displaced. How do you honor those veterans too? And um, so it, we were delighted that we were contacted, but it made us pause and give thought to where did Memorial Day come from and what are we doing? And in looking at Memorial Day, you know, it was called Decoration Day for a long, long time. Yeah. And it, yeah, I don't remember what was stopped. changed. That, that yeah. dates me if yeah. I remember the day it was changed. Yeah. yeah. 1972. <laughs> yeah. So it started with the war between the um, you know, people taking, of course, live flowers to um, the um, marker of one who had 
made the ultimate sacrifice in that war between the states. And then later Congress declared it as a, as a national day. And then later I think they changed it from decoration day to uh, Memorial day and made it a certain day of the, of the month. But now it's treated as a holiday and not a day of remembering our fallen, remembering our heritage, remembering our heroes. So um, we we have gone astray on that. And if each of us does our own part, um, we can we can get back on track. And that. Um, I wish that the um, folks would start putting the wreaths on the the uh, military cemeteries on on Memorial Day. I know they do it at, at Christmas, and it's beautiful. And um, but we've 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 gone astray on Memorial Day because we don't take pause to think about what we have. And to not only be grateful for it, but to remember those that provided it to us. So yes, absolutely. Yeah, because you know, I I know here we have a national cemetery that dates back. Well, the cemetery at my church dates back to the Revolutionary War. Uh, the one oh, wow. over the national cemetery uh, is, I believe, pre-Civil War. Uh, but every Memorial Day and every Veterans Day, there are flags on the graves. And yeah. they get they get the AMVETS and the VFW and they get the kids out there and it is a sea of flags. But you you have to encourage kids to learn our history instead of doing this critical race theory that pits one side of America against the other. That's another thing that's on your website. You have hooked up with Hillsdale College that you know encourages teaching our true history the founding documents and how we got here you also have a link through hillsdale to the 1776 uh, report from the 1776 commission and it is is so disheartening and i i had uh, gotten a message from one of my tea party members uh sending me a picture of a flyer from the university of south carolina that yesterday and today they were teaching school teachers from K through 12 critical race theory to bring back to the classroom. And I immediately, saw, as soon as I saw that, texted my school board member. And it's like, hey, I knocked on doors to get you a, on the petition and help get you elected. You know, he knows he's going to answer my text immediately. And he did within 15 minutes. And I said, is CRT being taught in our classroom? And I'm going to follow up with the school board, with the school super, uh, superintendent, who happens to know me very well also. You know, if we don't keep our history alive and allow them to carve it apart and destroy it and rewrite it, then we've lost our nation. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Beth, that's just my rant. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I can I can give you a few rants, too, but I won't at this time. <laughs> so, no, no, um, please do. Yeah. Let loose. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what you're saying reminds me of one of the young heroes that we have honored on our website. And um, this was a young boy. I think he started when he was 10 years old where he went to, he and his mom went to a cemetery in California 
where his um, <clears throat> excuse me where his grandfather uh, was buried, and um, the young boy's name was Preston Sharp, and he was appalled at ten years old that all of the graves there that were recognized as veterans, there was not a single flag out there. And so he talked to his mom about it and said, we're supposed to honor our veterans, not ignore them. And she said, yes, I know. And he said, well, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to get flags and honor every veteran in that cemetery myself. And so his mom said, okay, that's that's pretty tall order, but okay. Hello? A, uh, oh, they started I guess a website. Curtis didn't, Hello? Curtis didn't put it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Beth. Uh, Curtis forgot no to problem. put the guest into the, 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 the uh, <laughs> screening room. <laughs> no problem. So anyway, Uh, this boy named um, um, Preston Sharp started a website back in 2019 or something like that to get flags on the um, graves of veterans across America. And um, within a few years, he had 20,000 flags at grave sites in 28 states. So, um, wow. you know, our youth is, is um, just needs to know. They just need to know where they're coming from, what their history is, and to visit a cemetery and to understand what the veteran has done for them. It's a personal thing. It's, it's not, you know, <laughs> you have your life because of those that came before you. So that's not clearly understood. But anyway, that's just um, well, you're you're, well, you're Beth, mentioning that you me. Well, well, you do such a marvelous job. Your foundation is called We Can Be Heroes, and they can find you at We Can Be Heroes Foundation. And you can accept donations to help the foundation do all these marvelous projects in remembering our heroes, uh, honoring them. And then teaching the youth about the true history of these United States and this marvelous republic. Thank you, Thank you Beth, for all the Indeed. hard work you do. God bless you. Thank you. Take Thank care, you. Beth. All right. Beth, Beth Heath, check out her website, WeCanBeHeroesFoundation.org. Uh, Want to welcome, sorry about the little bit of a confusion there, Ari. Welcome back to the show, Ari Hoffman, the post-millennial and I started to write your name as Post as I'm typing it in. <laughs> Good afternoon, Ari. How are you doing? Oh, well, we got to unmute him. Why do I see him in there twice? Okay, I Hello? see him up there um, twice. Ari, oh, now we got you. It's the weirdest thing. You're in my switchboard twice. That is weird. Okay. Uh, I feel very famous that way. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You we, are so much. We cloned your voice. <laughs> Uh, you are the associate editor and correspondent for the Post Millennial, and you're the one that started breaking out the stories about what is going on in Seattle and how the, our nation is being turned upside down. And no one's talking about these assaults and these attacks on on Jews across America by anti-Semites, and and yet they put some of these other crap where a 
cops got in Minnesota or Minneapolis or something like that just yesterday took out a guy that aimed a gun at them, a wanted felon with an illegal firearm. And there's massive protests for that because a cop shot this black man that has a gun in his hand trying to shoot cops. But no one's talking about the attacks on Jews across the nation. This is strange. It doesn't fit or the narrative. It? it doesn't fit the narrative at all because the majority of the attacks on Jews are done by other minorities. The 2019 FBI hate crime data even shows this, but nobody wants to have that discussion. In fact, typically throughout history, it's been attacks of minorities against the Jewish population. One of the reasons my community, my Jewish community, is where it is in Seattle was because the Black Panthers used to beat up our congregants in a different area of Seattle. We picked up and moved the whole community to a different part of Seattle in in the 1960s and 70s. This is the kind of stuff we've been dealing with for years. This is nothing new. And the fact that the media is covering it up is nothing new either. Just something we're dealing with. Somebody asked me recently, they said, aren't you surprised by the increase in anti-Semitic attacks? I said, increase? What increase? I said, these things go on all the time. Media just, for some of them, are now covering it. But in addition to that, you do have people who are emboldened by the fact that they know the police officers are defunded. They know a lot of police officers are afraid to do their job. And as such, there's going to be less police protection for whatever they want to do, whatever that crime may be. You see spiking crime across the country. So it's not just an anti-Semitic problem. It's a matter of who's really safe right now when an autonomous zone can be formed in your city at any time. And will anybody actually shut the thing down? The George Floyd autonomous zone was just shut down yesterday after more than a year in Minneapolis. We had one in Seattle for three weeks. There was one in Portland for one week. These things can happen anywhere. If you're in a Democrat city, you're screwed. Well, you know, you are so right that this is not just a new phenomenon, because I was smack in the middle of the riots that were in Brooklyn, especially along Eastern Parkway, uh, when a Jewish guy accidentally ran over a black kid and the massive riots that erupted. And here I am straight out of the police academy and you're thrust right smack into the middle of this riot. We had to walk the Hasidic community across the Williamsburg Bridge and the Brooklyn Bridge because it would be the Sabbath, and they wouldn't be able to ride in the car. And when they tried to take a bus over the Queensboro Bridge, now the, the bus was attacked. You know, it, this is not something new. And I'm talking about the 1980s. And you're talking about the 60s, 70s. This has been going on in our nation for decades, and no one is reporting it or paying attention to it at all. Well, let's remember that one of the people in charge of reporting it for MSNBC is a guy named Al Sharpton. And the very riots you speak of, the Crown Heights riots in the early mm-hmm. 1990s, were inspired, triggered, encouraged, and inflamed by Al Sharpton. By the, I mean, literally the right Reverend Al. going through the streets. Right. They're going through the streets chanting death to Jews. They had a banner over that kid's funeral that died that said Hitler didn't finish the job. They had things of that that were happening. And don't forget, that was only one of two riots. Freddy's, Freddy's Fashion Shop, where he led another lynch mob there to kill people and people died, and this guy was a presidential candidate. This guy is an anchor on MSNBC. So you talk about people who encourage hate. You talk about systemic racism. Look at somebody like Al Sharpton, who has made multiple anti-Semitic comments before and never held accountable for any of them, inspired millions of dollars in damage and riots. People died during these riots. And what do you got to show for it? Well, now he's got a TV show, and he lost a few pounds. A few, a few. I actually watched that man bounce off the ground. And Ari, you'll you'll 
despite the seriousness of the situation, you'll you'll appreciate the humor because there was this um, anti-drug march by the Muslims uh, coming out of Cyprus, going down Eastern Parkway, and they had set up these bleachers. And somehow or other, the right reverend now decided to get himself in the middle of this anti-drug march. So we're doing the security around the area, and I'm standing behind the bleachers, and the right reverend now goes straight up to the top bleacher. Now, these weren't balanced properly, so he's there with his entourage on the top, and there's no one else on the bleachers, and it starts to tip. And you see this guy in this purple jumpsuit with his arms flailing around like he's trying to fly, and the whole thing topples over. He literally bounced. I'm telling you, the right Reverend Al bounced, and we're trying not to laugh. So uh, I guess the good Lord has a sense of humor because that's, that thing will never leave my sight. It is burned in my well, brain. Well, I'll tell you I'll tell you something that will never leave mine is that I was a kid when all this was going on living in New York. And I remember the amount of security guards that we had at our synagogues, the amount of security guards we right. had at our schools. I remember wondering, like, what's going on? Why are we so at risk? And that's something I'll never forget. Going home, hearing my parents talk about people going through the streets looking to kill Jews. That's the stuff they were teaching us in school about the Holocaust. And as a kid in New York, you start having nightmares, wondering if that stuff you learned about the Holocaust is going to happen to you when there are people going through the streets looking for these things on doors. You can tell a Jewish house if you know what you're looking for. They have ritual objects called mezuzahs on them, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to find a Jewish house, it's pretty easy to do. And that's what they were doing, going through the streets. Rabbis were asked if people should be taking these things down that had been signs of protection for millennia whether they should be taking those things down in America, in New York, in the 1990s. And what's happening now, you had an advisor, or sorry, a campaign worker for the Biden administration who was in charge of Jewish outreach telling Jews to take off their yarmulkes and remove their Jewish stars from their necks. That was the Biden administration, or rather the Biden campaign worker's response to all this anti-Semitism, as opposed to saying, no, we have to call it out and we have to stop all this. You know, there was a video up, video up on uh, one of the the social websites. I don't know if it was Yahoo or Hotmail or whatever, and it was showing that these two cars chasing down. It looked like a Hasidim because he was wearing a felty hat. Um, two cars chasing just this one Jewish guy down simply for the fact that he was Jewish. Now, yeah, if, if this was going after a black guy, then you're racist. But going after a Jewish guy, it's not racism. It's not anti-Semitism. Please go ahead. No, apparently Curtis. not. I mean, th- th- yeah, yeah, apparently not. Apparently, with people like Ilhan Omar, you know, we don't condemn her anti-Semitic comments. Instead, it's all forms of hate or evil. Sorry, Curtis. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just want to say that first of all, and thank goodness, um, Al Sharpton doesn't represent um, all blacks, and um, he has made numerous remarks over the years, right along with his buddy. Jesse Jackson, who said something about Jaime Town one time. And these guys are never, never um, called on these things, you know. Or if they are, you know, they just get a slap on the wrist. And and they're back in with the the good old boys of of the left-wing party in this country. So you're right. You know, there are things that the media will report and other things they won't report. You know, and and it's sad because the media, the free press is there and and was established to to defend 
the rights of the people to make sure that the, the government isn't pulling a fast you know one over on us but they've gotten in bed with the elites of this um this government um and um it, it's sad to say that they're no longer representing you know the best interests of the people you know, Curtis, it's actually, what you say is what you say is so tragic for so many different reasons. You go to most Jewish neighborhoods, they're right next to the African-American neighborhoods across the country. And there is so much shared history, similar experiences, that these communities should be getting along, working together, doing all that. And people like Al Sharpton tear these communities apart when they should be looking to each other for inspiration, for collaboration. Anytime I work with a black church on any project, it is always a wonderful experience. They're always the most loving, wonderful, generous people. And it kills me when I see things like Al Sharpton because he doesn't represent the African-American community. He represents his own pocketbook. He represents the Democrat Party. He represents his own interests. And people a lot of times don't realize that and they'll jump on whatever he's selling. He's a race baiter. And it's unfortunate because the amount of division he has caused has created and festered more racism, not stopped it. The reason why he does that the only reason why they do it is because it lines their pockets. The more they can stir it up, the more they can get donations from the gullible, and the more they can pocket that. Now, I'm sorry, uh, Jesse Jackson wrote a book with his sons about how exactly they did that. They made themselves millionaires by bilking the public and continuing to race bait. He wrote a book about it. So why does it yeah, surprise boycotting. They boycotted these um, corporations until – you know, they submitted, and um, then they got good deals, like Jesse Jackson's son would be put on the board, you know, things like that. It's, it's all self-interest and corruption at the highest order. You sometimes shake your head, and you just wonder what these people are thinking, and it's obvious. It's about the Benjamins. That's all they're thinking about. It's the better publicity they can get, and the better they can line their pockets, and once Americans start to realize that, then maybe we can calm down. But you are so right. If, if the community can sit down and talk to each other, you'd be amazed on what they can do. Now, we used to have a community outreach to the police department where NYPD would sit down and take both sides and have them sit together and then decide what they can work on. They, they dropped all those programs once Giuliani left office, and it's just caused for a greater rift where people used to work together and accept each other. And there was a revitalization under Giuliani where the the city just began to prosper. And once the Democrats took control again, we got uh, de Blasio. Oh, please. And just recently, he just, the AG for New York state said, police cannot use deadly force. I'm sorry. You're shooting at me and I can't shoot back at you. You've got to be kidding me. You can't prevent a rape if, if the person's life is in jeopardy? Please. Where's this woman's head thinking? What are we looking at, Ari? Well, I'll say is that the proof is in the pudding, as my grandmother always said. And look at what happened with the New York mayoral debate this week, where the top two candidates who are polling are the more conservative Democrats who are talking about enforcing the law and stopping crime. They're the ones who are polling at the top. And yet you have AOC out there talking about building less jails and less police. And yet Chuck Schumer standing right next to her looking like he wanted to slink away and die in a hole somewhere because he didn't want to be affiliated with the insanity that she was saying. The people 
who keep electing these progressives, the question is, are they going to double down with it in the New York mayoral election, or are they going to go with somebody more like Giuliani, a fiscal conservative, socially liberal, but when it comes to law and order, pretty conservative? Are they going to go with somebody like that? And I find it so interesting that Andrew Yang is turning out to be one of those candidates, and this other gentleman, the police officer he's running against, seem to be the two top candidates. But Andrew Yang, the guy who wants to give out universal income, is the law and order guy in this race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Andrew Yang, use up your reserves giving out money to everyone in the city. Uh, just don't touch the taxpayers, please. <laughs> And then see how far your bank account goes after a week or two. Um, and now up on um, your website, uh, or not your website, the one that you write for, um, the Post Millennial, there are tons of great articles up there. And it's one that I often you know, go to to see what, uh, uh, um, what is going on in the area. And uh, in Seattle uh, – your public schools are actually going nuts. They've got homeless encampments right outside. And you've got sex workers just trouncing right past these kids. What is going on? Have they lost their, their mind? You're exposing these kids to drugs and diseases and prostitution and Lord knows what else. I mean, drive-by shootings and the kids are, can't even play in the schoolyard. What is going on well, up there? I, I think you should look at the bright side with all this. And the bright side is they wanted sex ed more in the classroom. Well, now it's in the schoolyard, too. I mean, I think that's a bright side for them. They wanted this radical sex ed program. Now they've got it for all the kids to see. In addition to that, we should be happy that people are going back to work. I mean, the drug dealers are going back to work, and the sex workers are going back to work. So I assume these people aren't collecting government payment or government assistance, of course. No, I'm sure all this is above board, and they keep excellent books for the IRS to see. But basically what happened was during the initial phases of COVID, they allowed these homeless encampments to stay wherever they were in Seattle as opposed to clearing them out. They defunded the police unit that dealt with clearing out these encampments. And as such, they grew exponentially across the city and more cropped up. So two Seattle public schools had encampments form on them. One of them was eventually cleared after seven months of being there when the kids were heading back to the classroom. The other one because that one was on city property because it shares it with the public school. The other one was on public school property, and the public school board refuses to do anything about it because they say it would be traumatic for the students. So instead what they did was they put up some tarps, which are very complimentary because, you know, they match the tarps in the homeless encampment on some fences in order to block the view, but at the same time they're only four feet high, which means that any kid who's taller than that can see over them, the teachers can see over them. And, in fact, it's gotten so bad in that encampment, you have King County, which is the county that Seattle's in, bringing fresh needles to that property. You've had weapons in the encampment. You've had the school go on lockdown. You've had people try and get into the building. You've had people die of overdoses outside, two of them that we know of. It's nonstop. You have crime across the entire neighborhood. And the Seattle School Board says it would be non-compassionate to sweep this. It wouldn't be compassionate to get them out of there. And meanwhile, this is a ticking time bomb next to a public school, and the enrollment numbers are falling through the floor from what I'm told. So apparently now the teachers have actually filed with the Department of Labor and Industries a grievance saying it's an unsafe working environment, and they had to post a letter from Labor and Industries on a school bulletin board. It's really funny to see it there with all the student assignments that this letter from the Labor and Industries Department is hanging there saying report unsafe working environments to this number, fill out this form. 
Oh, jeez. You know, it, 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 it'd be a comedy if it wasn't so tragic. And there is going to be a, a major tragedy. All you need is one sex offender to get through. And, of course, no, wait a minute. Uh, this person's mentally disabled. You can't prosecute him. You know, it is it is absolute insanity. And how the parents are, are accepting this and not doing a class action suit. But then again, it's probably a underprivileged neighborhood where they don't have those resources. So what we need is some good attorney ready to do something pro bono on behalf of these parents. Yep. And there's a GoFundMe actually set up to help them out. It's listed on my article at thepostmillennial.com. I'm glad you said that. That was a good lead-in, wasn't that? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I, I was pulling up articles left and right last night, and I, I, this one I thought was hysterical uh, because there's always the call of racism. No matter what you try to do, something so very innocent can come up as racism. There was a news reported on a campus that revealed to be a construction cane's Cranes steal cable loop holding an American flag. So what part of that was racist? The loop that was holding the flag or the American flag? Well, the thing about this specific American flag was that there were multiple of these loops, cable loops, that are commonly used in construction all over the place. And, of course, everybody wants to call them a noose these days. But the only one they took issue with was the one that was holding up the American flag. There are literally six other ones right above this thing that they did not call out. They only called out the one holding up the American flag. So it seems like what they were really offended by was the American flag and had nothing whatsoever to do with these nooses that are actually construction crane loops. Now, you mentioned the squad earlier, AOC, Talab, uh, Rashid, um, and how they are pro-Palestinian, and they've got this uh, boycott on Israel. And there were these marches through Manhattan and other neighborhoods in the city where they actually physically attacked the Jewish people on the street. The same thing happened in London where they actually were on megaphones calling out to rape the women and the children of the Jews. Where is the outrage when you see these massive things going on? Yeah, so with with regard to this, I find it ironic given the fact that the cell phone was invented in Israel. So if you really want to boycott Israeli-made products, why don't they just give up their phones that they tweet from all the time? That would be a first step. Or maybe their laptops because a lot of the Intel technology was invented in Israel. In fact, if they really wanted to boycott Israel, the amount of products they would have to give up, because that's where a lot of research and development for technology is done, would be astronomical. A lot of the spyware, a lot of the malware protection, a lot of the computer protection was done there. So sure, just just give it all up. No problem. A lot of the medical advancements. Oh, wait, I got one. How about all the testing that was done on the vaccines using Israel as a testbed? A lot of the studies we have with regard to how effective the coronavirus vaccines were came from Israel. So hey, you guys who really want everybody to get the vaccine, why don't you start boycotting that? I mean, you'll sound like, as you call them, the far right in no time whatsoever. Not you, meaning them. Um, They'll sound like it in no time. They should just start boycotting the vaccine. No problem whatsoever. In fact, wait a minute. Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, all their CEOs are Jewish. If they really want to boycott these things, just be done with all the pharmaceuticals those countries create. No problem whatsoever. You know, it, it is just it, it just stuns me when you 
just lay it out like that. You've got all these benefits that have been given to you because of what has been done in Israel and inside the United States with people of the Jewish heritage in charge, and yet you are going to slap them in the very face. But that's, again, the same thing that Hitler did. You know, what we're seeing is, and that's the title of the show, are we seeing the rise of the Fourth Reich here in the United States? Have we gone so far to the left, to this fascist socialistic era, and that this is what we're going to see in the United States in the future? Yeah, I don't like making the Holocaust comparisons because we're not there yet, and typically that goes down a road you don't want to be at, but I hope that it's something that can never happen here. It's hope. It's something I can never see here. But I remember cautioning people in a speech I gave 15 years ago when I was you know, a youth director. I gave a speech that Jews always should not have a passport. Jews always need passports. Why? Because you never know when it's time to go. And I'm beginning to see a lot of signs wondering if it's time for the Jewish community to be out of here. And I'm wondering what the signs were that my relatives in Germany and Europe and elsewhere didn't see and that they didn't realize until it was too late. And that's the kind of stuff I worry about. Well, that's a good thing to worry about. You know, if you throw on top of that the critical critical race theory – which is dividing the nation that's being pushed in the schools. And I've, I've said this a couple of times on today's show. One of my members of my Tea Party sent me a, a little tweet with a picture of it of our local college yesterday and today teaching our teachers critical race theory for K through 12 to bring back to their schools to teach in schools. So I got a hold of my school board representative and I says, tell me about this. Is this in our schools? And after I get off of this, first thing Monday morning, I'll be with the school superintendent saying, Frank, what is going on here? Have any of our teachers from our school district attended this thing and intend to bring it back into the school? Because this is another factor into the war to divide America. The critical race theory is not just about with regard to Black Lives Matter or any of those causes. If people actually look at the stuff, there's tons of anti-Semitism, anti-capitalism, pro-Marxism. I mean, literally in Seattle, Washington, for MLK Day this year and then for Black History Month, they replaced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with other Marxists. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say other Marxists, with Marxists. And some of these Marxists actually worked with Dr. King and were eventually, I wouldn't say expelled, it's not the right word, but were kind of demoted inside the ranks of the civil rights organization because they didn't want the Marxism invading what they were trying to do. Unfortunately, the Democrat Party and BLM have been completely taken over by that kind of ideology. And as such, you're seeing it play out right now. I wonder what Dr. King would think about this because his relatives have made it very, very clear that he would not have supported most of this kind of stuff that's being done in regards to his name, in regards to what's going on to further you know, the black community and such, and re- with regard to what they call civil rights. A lot of this stuff is just really pure racism. A lot of it is discriminatory, and a lot of it is pushing Marxism in an overthrow of America. We had riots for an entire summer and longer last year, and the Congress, all they want to talk about is the the riot on January 6th. Now, mind you, that should be investigated 1,000%, but instead of calling it the January 6th Commission, shouldn't we call it the Riot Commission? Because if you think that a bunch of morons invading the Capitol – 
for a couple hours, who were then promptly kicked out, and they resumed, and they were able to continue the Democrat process and elect a new president through the Electoral College. That was not a threat to our democracy. But meanwhile, an organization that says it wants to overthrow capitalism, it wants to undo the entire country, that caused over $2 billion in damage throughout an entire summer throughout cities across the country, cost dozens of lives. Tell me how that wasn't more of an insurrection. Not only that, a lot of those areas that were decimated will never recover for generations. I mean, I got to Brooklyn at the time. uh, It was 20 years after the race riots in the cities, and buildings were still burnt out. Whole blocks were still empty. So what is happening in Seattle and Portland, you're not going to see that city bounce back tomorrow. It's going to take decades. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I was just thinking, isn't it a paradox that with the history of the Hebrew community that some of them still support the Democrat Party? I don't understand that. It makes no sense at all. Yeah, it makes no sense at all. Basically, here's what it – well, actually, it makes perfect sense if you know the insides of the Jewish working world like I do. But basically, here's what it is. When Jews go off the path, as we say, when they decide to abandon their religion and become less observant, they're still very passionate people, but they typically replace the Judaism with another ism be it socialism, be it capitalism, be it Marxism, whatever that ism is. And as a result, a lot of them have warped Jewish views that they tend to take and with regard apply it only to politics. So there's this phrase in, in Hebrew, which is tikkun olam b'malchut shaddai, which means you know repairing the world in the kingdom of heaven. Now, they just use the first part of it, tikkun olam, repairing the world, and they leave out the part in the kingdom of heaven with regard to what God wants. And as such, all they do is focus on social justice topics, thinking that's their way of keeping Judaism. You ask them to read Hebrew, they can't do it. You ask them to do anything with regard to services, they can't do it. You ask them to recite anything from the Bible, they can't do it aside from the things they've been pre-programmed to say. They can't do any of that kind of stuff. They have no idea what they're even saying. I bet if you ask them to recite that entire quote, they couldn't do it. They have no idea what it actually means. So they have applied the entire thing to social justice. And as such, they have replaced their own religion with politics. Well, see, that's where they no longer are uh, adherent, as you said, adherent to the faith. We have the same problem in Christianity. They don't read the Bible. They don't know the services. They can't recite anything. But they show up every Sunday, and they'll sit there in the pew as if they're pious. But they're, they're just there. But then where their beliefs get warped. Now, we had a major battle here in South Carolina between the left arm of the church and the right arm. And we we walked away and said, no, we're not going to have, because this is against the Bible, the same-sex marriage. We're not going to have this. We're not going to have that. No, what you're doing is not adhering to the Bible. And you have the same thing with the Jewish faith. They lose their path. They no longer adhere to the Torah. And they they are recreating or redesigning your faith, the same thing that they're doing to ours, redesigning the faith and making it more socially acceptable instead of taking the harder path and adhering to true faith. And this is where we get the distortion that we're facing in today's society. Am I looking at this wrong or right, Ari? 
No, no, I think you're 100% right. And you see this in a lot of faiths. Just as you said, a lot of faiths have the exact same problem. As people get less observant to Judeo-Christian values, they tend to replace them with this political garbage instead. And they forget exactly why they're doing what they think they're doing is in the best interest of their religion. And it doesn't represent their religion anymore. A lot of these wars over religion, they weren't over religion, they were over land. So they could say, oh, religion has caused all these wars. No, a lot of it wasn't over religion. It was over money. It was over land. It was over resources, it was over control, a lot of that kind of stuff, and it's all warped views of the original religion, which well, many of which were founded with some very good ideas. But unfortunately, they've been twisted and warped, and people have decided to use religion or replace their religion with this stuff. Yeah, and then the, the mindless idiots like the squad, oh, Palestine, it's an occupied territory. Uh, excuse me, no. I don't think so because there never was a nation called Palestine. That's like calling well, North I America it, I find it a more nation. Entertaining. Yeah, I, right. I find it more entertaining <laughs> that these same people talk about indigenous rights here in America. And you're saying, wait a minute, hang on, let me make sure I got this right. You're saying what we did to the Native Americans was horrible and wrong, which, yeah, a lot of it was. But at the same time, you're saying so Israel having their country where the Jews have been for thousands of years, predating Islam by at least 1600 years. You're saying that's wrong. I don't really understand how you square that circle. <laughs> well, Ari, it has always been a pleasure having you on there. You are with the the. Oh, my teeth just went in backwards. The post millennial. There's a link up on the show page so that when people catch the podcast in the archives, they can click on it and see all the marvelous articles you and the other correspondents have in there. You do marvelous work. I love seeing you up on Newsmax all the time. I go, hey, that's my buddy. <laughs> To my 89 oh, Italian grandmother. <laughs> and she'll probably thank stay you. in Montessor. Ari, God bless you for all the hard work you do. Don't stop. Don't give up. You guys have a great weekend. You, you too. too. Ari Hoffman. Check him out, the post-millennial. And our final victim for the day, and I understood he asked to come back on the show. Boy, is he a glutton for punishment. A fellow paisano, Dr. <laughs> Joseph Lucanti. Good afternoon, Joe. How are you doing today? Annie, good to be with you. Can you hear me okay? Oh, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Oh, terrific. Well, welcome aboard. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Did I have to come back on? I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, um, I don't know how I missed this because, you know, I would have loved to sit down with you, and this would have probably taken hours to, to talk about yes. your book that I missed. I don't know how I would – I must have gotten hit with a baseball bat to miss this one. Yes. You're the author of a book. A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. And i got to tell you a true story. I'm an avid reader, yeah. and when I was going to junior high and high school, I would always wander into the library to look for good, new, and interesting books to read. And that's how yeah. I stumbled, by accident, of course, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. Oh, and wow. I, wow. As a kid, and I just, I just mm. ate those books up. And as I was growing up, um, I began as I reread them, and I still have them in my bookcase that I occasionally pick them up to reread. I began to understand better what they were writing about. As a kid, you don't understand it, but then when you begin to understand the history yes. and understand yes. the men that wrote these, you understood how it tied in to World War One. And yes. you know, oh man, <laughs> what a conversation we would have. Yeah, no, we can certainly have that conversation. I'm actually working as, on a little film project, I should tell you, Annie, a documentary a film series based on the book, 
with the same title, The Hobbit of Wardrobe of the Great War. We're going we're gonna to screen the first episode one. It's ready for screening in September at Grove City College. So stay tuned. Oh, man. Then we definitely have to get you on there and get ourselves a premiere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's a terrific story because it's, it's how did war, not just the First World War, but also the Second World War, both these men, their lives were, were bracketed by war. And they became great friends after World War I at Oxford. And then they went on to write these amazing epic stories, which if you think about it, the Lord of the Rings, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, they're war stories, right? Absolutely. In many ways. You know, and, and, in many ways. So, yeah, in many ways. sometime. That'd be great. Yeah, because actually I have uh, some of C.S. Lewis's other books up in my bookshelf, too. Um, it's a five-book series, and I actually have got a brain fart. Um, I, I can't think of the title now because it's, it's one of his most famous writings. Uh, but, yeah. Anyway, moving sure. right along. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, we were talking about earlier critical race theory. And this is the craze that's been going across the country. Um, but states yeah. Yeah. with conservative governors and legislatures are starting to push back. You know, there's legislation moving through here in South yeah. Carolina. It's got stonewalled down in Texas. But has it passed in Florida? I'm not sure. I have not, I have not heard the latest in Florida, to be honest with you. Um, but I am encouraged by the pushback, certainly happening at the state level among academics. And I've got to say, our friends across the pond, our British friends, the, the, uh, uh, the leadership of Boris Johnson over there, they're pushing back against critical race theory. Uh, in, in the U.K., they're, they're, they're moving to ban it uh, from, the, uh, from the colleges. They, they see it as destructive as we see it over here. Good. Well, here, well, here at the University of South Carolina here, yesterday and today, had a seminar for school teachers, K through 12, and teaching critical race theory to these teachers to bring back yeah. to the local school districts. And as soon as I saw that, I, my, I'm, this is probably the fourth time I've mentioned yeah. it on the show today. I contacted my school board uh, representative, yeah. and immediately he's, he's on that to find out. Within 15 minutes, he was, said, let me check out and let me know. And now I know yeah. the school superintendent, so Monday I'm going to follow up with him. And I says, are we right. going to have these people bring this back to our school district? Because that's, yeah, not, right. that's not what South Carolina teaches, because we passed legislation a number of years ago here that you must teach the founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, at the high school and graduate level. So this goes yeah. in the flies directly in the face of legislation we already have on the books. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. How, how, how about obeying the law and the Constitution? How about that? <laughs> well, you've got a marvelous article that you wrote back in March about it. See, I do my homework, <laughs> and I pulled it up, and you spoke about you know defeating the progressive attack on our constitutional order and the moral yeah. legitimacy of American founding. And this is the important yes. part, because when you talk about the founding fathers, oh, they were racist, oh, they were slave owners. Yeah. That's not complete truth, is it? Look, it, it, life is complicated, and we certainly have uh, the American founders, a number of them who own slaves. So there's a living contradiction between the principles they're declaring, right, liberty, equality, you know, equal justice under the law, freedom. There's obviously a, a massive contradiction between what, they're, what, what many of them are communicating and proclaiming and how they're actually living in their personal lives. So let's, 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 sure, let's acknowledge that, and now let's move on in this sense. The, the amazing thing that they did was by, by proclaiming the natural universal rights of men and women, 
being made in the image of God. In Anne rights, what they did was they put the institution of slavery on notice. They said, now, on notice all over the world, we have a, we have a nation coming into existence de- declaring the natural universal rights of men and women. In other words, we're, 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 we're launching a, a new war against human slavery. That might sound ironic to the, to the uh, advocates of critical race theory, but that's, that is literally what the Declaration and ultimately the Constitution are going to do. That's why Frederick Douglass, the great African-American leader and friend of Lincoln, uh, referred to the Constitution as a glorious liberty document. I wish some of my friends in the critical race theory world would just actually read a little Frederick Douglass. They they get educated and stop and stop behaving in such an ignorant way. They have to explain how is it that Frederick Douglass, who's you know born into slavery, <laughs> and there he is, eighteen sixties America, uh, you know pretty pretty segregated racist uh, world over there in eighteen sixties, calls the the Constitution a glorious liberty document. So was he wrong? Was he just a patsy and a chump? If that's what they really believe <laughs> in the critical race theory, then come out and say it. Say it. Right. Well, they they wrestled with this moral question. And because of that, that is why Thomas Jefferson was able to put that into the Declaration of Independence. They they battled with it. They said, all right, in order yeah. to start the nation, let's recognize that we have a problem here. We're going to have to kick yeah. the can down the road a little bit. Let's get our nation created. Let's get it established. Kick the British out. Create our art was it was the Articles of Confederation, which then led to the Constitution. But if you read the biography of the Constitution, and I always refer to the Brodies uh, that wrote this back in the 50s and 60s, they wrote it so well, describing the process in which the Constitution was created, and how this became a pivotal argument. And if we didn't turn around and say, "All right, kick the can down the road, form the nation." Yeah. But we know this is a fight we're going to have to have. The abolitionists, yeah, the I John think, Adams. Yeah, want- yeah, yeah. I think you're on. To, I think you're on something really, really important here that is just worth stopping and thinking about. Okay, they faced very difficult, painful choices. America was a British colony. Britain was at the at the tip of the spear of the, of the international slave trade. So the American colonies, by definition, were part of that slave trade empire. All right, how are you going to break the pattern? At the Constitutional Convention, they had very difficult choices to make. Can we come together as a country and abolish slavery at the same time at the Constitutional Convention? They decided it wasn't going to happen, that the southern states would bolt. And then the obvious consequences are you have a divided nation, no national government, right, no constitution, and now you're susceptible to what? Not only internal conflict, but ultimately external invasion, because there are plenty of European nations swooping like vultures, vultures, <laughs> ready to take out the Americans. So it was an existential moment for these guys in Philadelphia. I, you know, what, what would we have done in, in their shoes? I'm not sure. They did what they thought was the most rational, hopeful thing they could do, let us delay the decision while the northern states, as you know, are already moving to abolish slavery. Already moving to abolish, some have already done that by the Constitutional Convention. So they thought the trend lines were, were moving in the right direction anyway, culturally and politically. It'll be a matter of time. Let's get the experiment off the ground. Not a bad choice at the end of the day when we look at the results, right? Absolutely. Well, and it was actually, less, than, less than 100 years that they actually started the mechanism when they started with like, all right, free, uh, when the new states were coming in, whether or not you would be free or slave with the, uh, yeah. what was it, the uh, yeah. Kansas. A compromise, the Missouri Compromise. Uh, Missouri they compromise, set the mechanism, yeah. 
and it was less than a hundred years, Le- just a generation away that they began yeah. the process of freeing the whole entire nation. <clears throat> Curtis, please go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. actually, actually, in the draft of the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson had a line in there um, telling pretty much, you know, King George III that the colonies were going to rid themselves of slavery. But as noted by our guests, um, I think it was two southern states that balked at that, the the two um, delegates. So they forced him to remove that line. But we could have ended slavery then. It is fascinating, Curtis. You're really on something important. Jefferson, in the original draft, you're right. He takes aim at the international slave trade and and, and describes it as as, as a moral evil. Uh, and yet it is stricken. So there, here's how I like to put it. I think the founders, uh, and including now the slave owners, they have a guilty conscience. They have a guilty conscience about slavery. Part of the reason, I believe, is because the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, the Bible is a freedom book. Uh, that's, the, that's the overarching narrative arc of the Bible. It's a freedom book. And it really served as the third, if you, if you will, the third founding document for the, for the American founders, the Declaration, the Constitution, and the scriptures. So the guilty conscience is there. They're at a crisis existential moment in Philadelphia in 1787. They make the decisions that they make. And then it, it, the fact that we have a civil war, it, it obviously reveals how deeply divided the country was and how this scourge had to be dealt with eventually. Unfortunately, it went through a civil war, a bloody civil war. So, you know, here we are. I think it's amazing progress that we have made. Absolutely amazing progress. Let me just mention this, guys, and then back to you. The fact that the Democratic Party, which was the pro-slavery, pro-segregation, pro-Jim Crow, pro-Ku Klux Klan party for most of its history, the fact that the Democratic Party could put as a candidate Barack Obama, an African-American man who wins election uh, to the highest political office in our land twice with pretty comfortable margins. Well, that's quite a that's quite a change. Whatever you think of Obama's policies, and I didn't like I didn't like most of them. Whatever you think of his policies, that's a tremendous step forward. And I wish our friends in the critical race theory world would actually acknowledge that at a, an incredible uh, uh, suggestion of progress. How about it? Well, just happy. I got to ask you a question because I didn't catch the entire portion yeah. of what President Biden said. He said something about the founding of the KKK. Did I hear him correctly, or did I mishear him that he said that it was formed in the 1950s? He may have said that with Joe Biden. Anything is possible uh, for all kinds <laughs> of reasons will come out of his mouth. So he may well have said that he's been very wrong about very many things for most of his life. So who knows? Uh, he, I don't, I, it's not even clear to me that, that President Biden understands the, the roots, the cultural roots, the racist roots of his own party. And all that history has just been covered up. I don't think he even knows that the Republican Party is the party of Lincoln. <laughs> so there. Yeah, well, you know, he, really are. well, the KKK unfortunately has its roots in my state here, South Carolina, uh, because of yeah. a Confederate general who went on to become yeah. a senator. And he put together the red shirts which then became the KKK, and it was wow. Senator, Senator Tillman that attacked a abolitionist on the floor of the Senate oh, yeah. uh, with wow. his walking right. stick uh, with, in with the defense of, oh, yeah. of segregation and slavery. So, you know, yeah. uh, Biden was yeah. off by uh, almost 100 years there. Yeah. That was he, uh, he, uh, Charles he, 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 Go ahead, Curtis. I'm sorry. Go ahead. He beat up. 
He beat up Charles Sumner, um, yeah. the leader of the uh, radical Republicans in the Senate. Incredible. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. So when we talk about when we talk about institutional racism, what, what I want to say is, yeah, I, I, I can see institutional racism. It was in the Democratic Party for most of its history. And now you could argue there's a different kind of racist mentality going on in the Democratic Party. But that's another story for another day. But the, po- the point is, a little bit of honest history, I think, ought to make us grateful for what we've achieved, even as we strive for a more just society. And it's the complete lack of gratitude, not an ounce of it, uh, on the radical left that I just find so um, uh, what's the word I want here? Uh, unacceptable, unpleasant, <laughs> and it leads to nothing. It just leads to tearing everything down. Is what they're trying to do, right? Well, that's well, because you know, they have an anti-American agenda. Yeah, they're not thinking exactly about which I was gonna, Well, that's exactly what I was going to pull up about the same article because I wrote next to this paragraph. I wrote, "Boom." You wrote, "Yet the American creed and all of its accomplishments is under vicious assault." We have entered a season of identity-based politics and tribalism. It is dissolving yeah. the idea that Americans are, for all the differences, one. And then I yes. circled this one and wrote next to it, Stalin. Although there are real dangers from abroad, much of the threat to our republic comes now from within. Did not Stalin yes. predict that? That's a good question. Uh, well, I think uh, I think Lincoln. Let me put. Let me bring Lincoln in the in the picture. Lincoln said the threat is not going to come from outside. The threat will come from within. And the line from Lincoln that is so chilling: "We must live through all time or die by suicide. Die by suicide." And that it seems to me the forces of the radical left, which has found a very comfortable home in the Democratic Party right now, uh, they will drag this country into the pit of hell. Uh, if they're not challenged uh, and checked. Yeah, because now we're seeing anti-Semitism as, it, as more than a heavy yeah, crime. Of course. It's an assault, yeah. of course. And our previous guest, Ari Hoffman, you know, we were talking about this, but the rise of anti-Semitism, it's been here for generations, but I've yeah. never seen it rise to this sort of a frenzy where you see yeah. outright attacks simply for wearing a yarmulke or a felty hat. Yeah. Uh, there was yeah. the one his his I believe he was his seedum from the outfit he was wearing in L.A. chased by two guys, by yeah. guys in two cars. You see the outright yeah. you know pro Palestine march attacking them on the yeah. streets of Manhattan. You know yeah. I've walked the beat in Williamsburg uh, uh, on, down Lee Avenue and we never saw anything like that until we saw yeah. the uh, uh, Brooklyn Heights riots of the 80s and 90s. And yeah, walk wow. right through the mass of that crowd. But this is yeah. far worse than I have ever something's seen. Going on. Yeah, something's going on. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to know all the reasons. But what I, what I suggest in my piece here in National Review uh, from over the weekend about anti-Semitism as an assault on American principles, I'm suggesting by the end of that essay that I think the militant secularism, the more secular our country becomes, and, and certain the, the political parties, take a look at the liberalism and the Democratic Party, increasingly secular, there's a connection. And we, have, we can't quite trace it all out, but there's a connection between that, the rejection of the idea of transcendent moral truth and an assault on the Jews. Because what do the Jews represent? Well, you know, the Jews have – there are many wonderful gifts that the Jews have given civilization. One of them, of course, is the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the moral law divinely given through the Jewish people. That's Jewish exceptionalism. That is anathema to the radical left, to the militant secular left. That's, 
that may explain some of it. That's what I'm suggesting. Others can trace out other, other reasons, but that's certainly one of them from my perspective as an historian. Well, Joe, I'm now going to really take you right, really down the road because with Stalin in power, um, he ended up making alliances with the Muslim world. And when Hezbollah and Hamas and all the other radical terrorists were going to get trained, they went to Moscow. Now, isn't it ironic that a lot of what we're seeing is the rise of socialism, of Marxism, uh, but when we saw the Antifa riots originally before Trump was elected, I made a remark to my husband and to my audience, uh, resemblance to the black, the, the black shirts and the brown shirts under yeah. Hitler. The use of masks and scarves very similar to what Hamas and Hezbollah have when they go against the Israelis. And I said, there's got to be a connection between Marxism, Islamic terrorism, and the Antifa riots that we're seeing. And now we see the rise of Black Lives Matter with blatantly yeah. Marxist stuff on their website. And I think it is the Marxist socialist way to infiltrate our country, tear it apart, and, in, and institute pure communism and Marxism here. I think it's all it's hard to know. It's hard to know where it's all going. It's hard to know all the forces that are arrayed here uh, from from the from the from the radical left, and and certainly there are these socialist Marxist influences. I have to say also though that there is a just a there is such a um, a complete lack of understanding among ordinary people, ordinary Americans, uh, young people who are getting maybe sucked into uh, some of these social justice causes, Black Lives Matter causes. There's such an ignorance of our history. That I think there are, there are yet we have to say, you know, there are uh, at least some number of well-meaning people who are just being sucked in and duped <laughs> by these radicals. So part of my task at, at the Heritage Foundation is to try to bring some honest intellectual history uh, to, this, to this story, to the American story, fully aware of our warts, fully aware of where we failed to live up to our highest ideals. But also as an historian who's taught Western civilization for about a decade, I'm also aware of what the historical alternatives are to liberal democracy, to the West, to the United States. And those alternatives are not very happy, uh, as, as any rational person should know. So I want to keep making the argument that um, amazing achievements, despite our failure to live up to our ideals. Mm. Now, I had a, a precinct meeting. Uh, we went through the precinct reorganization recently for the GOP, and um, I was meeting with some of the members that were part of the precinct committee and one of them happens to be a pastor uh children's uh, uh not a pastor but the director of two children uh services in our church and he made a comment that really struck me he goes um well if you really are someone that truly believes in jesus um you could be a democrat and i says wait a minute I don't think so, because if we really, truly do follow through Judaism, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, and you follow the teachings of Christ, if anything, you should be a conservative. So I don't understand how someone can profess to be uh, truly giving their life to Christ and believing in him as the Savior and not understanding what he was teaching at the same time. And this ties into our founders and the principles which they created this nation upon. Yeah, this is a big question. I mean, the uh, the influence of Christianity, let's just talk about the, the influence of Christianity on the founding for a moment. Uh, 
even though the American founders, they, they had all different kinds of religious views. You have, you have deists, you have maybe some agnostics there, you have more evangelical Christians in, as part of that founding generation. But you know what they all really shared was a profound respect for the Bible uh, and the basic teachings of the Bible and the moral code. None of the founders imagined you could sustain a republic, a democratic republic, without virtue, and none of, the belie- none of them believed you could sustain virtue, civic virtue, personal virtue, without faith, without religious belief. They just didn't think it could be done. They didn't think you could really build a republic on the backs of atheists. Now, the good news is atheists can and have been and are good, good citizens. Uh, great. <laughs> well, you know, come on in. The water's fine. But at the end of the day, what's going to hold the Democratic Republic together in terms of virtue, self-government, the ability to you know, live out a decent moral code, you're really going to need uh, the power of faith commitment, faith communities, bringing people together as a force, a unifying force. That's what Tocqueville saw in America in the 1830s, a very religious period in the United States. He sees robust religion, and he connects it to freedom. He connects it to American democracy, not separate, but intimately connected. So we have to ask, you know, our very militant secular friends, well, (laughs) what you're after, it seems, is a complete repudiation of how the American founding, how the American public political order came into existence. That's a a challenge, isn't it? But didn't he he also predict the downfall of America because we have too good a heart? You're talking about Tocqueville? Yeah. Didn't he then, in the end, make the prediction that if if we don't keep those high moral standards, we have such a generous and good heart that we've just let anything go. We now have a society that, <laughs> if it feels good, you know, go ahead with it. Uh, he well, he foresaw you know, that talk- that we had so much. Well, you know, he's he's Tocqueville is is a fascinating character because he sees America's strengths and weaknesses at the same time, and he's candid about both. He's hopeful about where America can go. And he absolutely sees its strengths relative to the European alternative, which are not very good uh, there in Europe. He sees the dynamism, the energy, the freedom, the, the, the creativity, uh, the, the, the community, the association, the civic activism. He sees all that. He worries about, I think one of the things he worries about is radical individualism. Are Americans going to go off the rails uh, and, uh, and lose sight of the community, the common good, virtue? He does worry about that, uh, Tocqueville does. And, you know, we're, we're worrying about it now, aren't we? <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, absolutely. So, so there you are. <laughs> well, you know, people can find you at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, where else can they find you? Oh, you know, I've got a personal website, uh, josephloconti.com uh, over there. That, we've got a, a list of my articles over there, josephloconti.com. But also, yeah, heritage.org is the other place. So feel free to check out the stuff. Well, that's why I gave you the lead-in. See, I've been leading you in the whole time tonight. (laughs) That's right. right. Uh, We're down to our last five minutes. And I also have a link uh, to the book, uh, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and a Great War. And I'm looking forward to reading it uh, and then (laughs) maybe sitting down with the scotch with you one day and going over it. (laughs) Well, that sounds like fun, uh, Annie. Uh, and uh, more sh- uh, shameless self-promotion, uh, for, in terms of the book there, the book on Tolkien and Lewis, we're in the midst of the film series. If people want to check out a trailer to the film series, they can go to hobbitwardrobe.com, hobbitwardrobe.com. It's about a four-and-a-half-minute film series. And if they want to contribute, help us finish the film, we're all for that as well. 
uh, what I find amusing is that it was John McCain that called us all hobbits. And uh, at the time, I go, oh, by the way, John, the hobbit was the hero in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, that's true. Exactly right. Yeah, we, we, need, we need those hobbits. The little guy that took down the giants, like David against yeah. Goliath. Exactly. That's right. That's so, right. That's right. A little hobbit. A little Joe, hobbit strength. A hobbit courage. That's right. Absolutely. I just get a bunch of T-shirts going, I am a hobbit. I am a hobbit. <laughs> Not everyone who wanders is lost, as as Tolkien put it. Not everyone who wanders is lost. Not at all. Joe, always fun to have you. You always leave me laughing, and you have such a positive personality. With this nation opening up, with the churches opening up their doors once again, and parents seeing the dangers of public schooling and critical race theory, uh, I think we're seeing going to see our nation start to turn around, especially with the midterm elections. I'm hopeful, Joe. Are you? You know, the reason I'm hopeful is because the, the problems we face, the critical race theory stuff, that this kind of crisis, the crisis suggests what the solution is, and we have it in our hands. And what we have in our hands is truth. We have, we, we have a better grasp of history, and I think we have much more committed uh, uh, to honesty about that history. And when you when you tell the American story fairly and accurately to young people, especially, they respond positively and they are inoculated from the lies. That's the good news. We just we just have work to do. We got work to do to educate. Absolutely, Joe. All right. You have a healthy, happy and blessed weekend, Joe. And thank you again. God bless you. Do the same. Great being on the show. Take care. Take care, guys. Bye bye. Take care. All All right. All right. Check out Joe Lacanti at his new website, joelacanti.com or heritage.com. There's links over on the show page. Um, we're already starting to book up for next week. Um, holy cow. I, I I forget who I got next week. Oh, I just went <laughs> straight out of my mind. I, I was having so much fun with uh, today's show that I forgot, you know, who we got here. Um, I'll just see if I can take a quick look. I know I – oh, The Great Awakening – is oh dr hamus sharad he is the author of ren's great awakening uh he is known as the billy graham of iran so yeah we've got ourselves a great show going on uh next week we're starting to fill in guests uh we are looking forward i don't have a date just yet uh but for um kevin sorbo to join us so we've, he's already sent me an email. He said, yes, he's on. So we'll see when we can book him. And hopefully within the next month, we'll have the new format. So it's going to be something looking similar along the lines to Newsmax. You'll be able to see the full video interact in our chat rooms. So, Curtis, I'm going to leave them with a song by our friend, Gary Pecorella. Save America. All right. That's that. All right. Sounds so great. here we go. I'm praying for this land I love, America, America, the home of the free. But there are people making plans to change America. They've no respect for her, or what matters most to me. That's why I stand for the flag and I kneel at the cross. My 
Thank you. 